Welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast with your host, David McIntosh. This week, my guest is Ryan Mack, aka Bully Balang. Ryan Mack is an outdoorsman, YouTuber, ex-bodyguard and Afghanistan veteran. He is also a trader. In this episode, we cover the distance travelled by Ryan from Cumbernauld in Glasgow. He's lived a life across Iraq, Afghanistan and Indonesia. His tough Scottish shell and his experiences in the military has transformed him into an amazing content creator, capturing the most incredible endeavours, including scaling some of the most dangerous mountains in the southeast of Asia and living with the most remote tribes in Indonesia. His huge following has amassed him sponsors with North Face, Kawasaki, and many other huge brands. He's become one of the most popular figures in his field in his continent. Ryan has such an alpha mindset and a really disciplined soul, which you'll hear throughout this podcast. Two hours, 10 minutes with an amazing, amazing guest. Stick around. And before you go, hit five stars, hit subscribe, and share this podcast with your friend. This one is remarkable. Ryan is truly in the 0.1% of humans, and I want this to become in the 0.1% of podcasts. So please, please, please do what you can and help out this podcast. And feel free to buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash D by D podcast. The link's in the bio. Thank you. Thank you to my cousin for sponsoring this episode with his organization, Ross Clark Roofing. I've literally watched Ross build this organization from the ground up, pardon the pun, for the last 20 plus years. If you're in need for top-notch roofing services, look no further. Ross has you covered. Based in the heart of air, Ross Clark Roofing is your go-to solution for all things roofing, rough casting, and roofline installation and repair. With an amazing track record of over 25 years in the industry, you can trust their experience and my word to meet all your roofing needs. Ross takes pride in delivering first-class roofing services that not only protect your home but enhance its aesthetics. Whether you're in Ayrshire, Glasgow or any surrounding areas, their skilled roofers and whole team are ready to serve you. If you're interested in that, head along to rossclarkroofingair.co.uk or just Google Ross Clark Roofing and tell them David sent you. New Life Gym are back sponsoring another episode. If you're in Glasgow and have always wanted to try a combat sport but have been too scared, New Life MMA can help. They offer boxing, Muay Thai, wrestling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for beginners and pros. The team led by ex-pro MMA fighter and previous guest and my good friend David Galbraith will take care of you. Just mention my name when you go or head along to www.newlifeglasgow.com. You must have heard his story when he was on the podcast. You'll understand why his gym has been so integral to my integration into the community and so many others. Head along to newlifegymglasgow.com or newlifegym in Mary Hill. This podcast is also sponsored by Mastering the Art of, again by David Gilbraith. It's time to introduce you to a game changer, Mastering the Art of. He's ready to unlock your full potential with his app, Mastering the Art of. They're all about taking you from good to exceptional with their mental performance coaching and artistry. They'll equip you with the ultimate tools to unleash your mental and physical prowess, whether that's through one-to-one coaching, group coaching, or their app. Head along to masteringtheartof.co.uk. That's masteringtheartof.co.uk and tell them David sent you. Ryan Mack, welcome to the Development by David podcast. How are you? I'm good, mate. Thank you for the invite, David. It's a pleasure. I'm going to give a behind-the-curtain look into the podcast. Ryan and I just recorded eight minutes 
of this podcast and our microphones were yeah. playing up and we've just spent the last 45 <laughs> minutes trying to work and on each other's yeah, yeah like two it I, technicians that have no skibby about technology it was like the Choco brothers is it mine is it yours is it mine <laughs> <laughs> but we're here now man let's let's crack on if i were to ask you who ryan mack is today in 2023 how would you bring that topic you've already had practice at this one so yeah, so I'm now a successful currency trader. I've been doing it for about eight years uh, for uh, big companies. Um, I now have a trading school where we teach people how to trade on a Discord channel. They subscribe, we teach them how to trade. I do live trading for them every day. Um, and then on as a kind of side hobby, um, I started making um, videos outdoors to trade Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, which gives me Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday to go and want. Um, and then I, I really love the outdoors because I have an army background, which we'll cover later. Um, and I started doing outdoor stuff, uh, going to the jungle, the mountains, volcanoes. And one of my mates was like, mate, you should put that on YouTube. Uh, people love watching that kind of stuff. I put it on YouTube. Um, week one, I had like 71 subscribers. And by week three, I had 150,000 subscribers and it just exploded. Um, I ended up getting sponsored, and I still am sponsored by the North Face, Kawasaki, the 360 cameras, the the, the whole shebang. And I didn't even mean to be a YouTuber, just, it was, I was like, yeah, I'll put that on. And it, I really thought to myself, this, I'm going to put them on here, so when I'm 70, 80, in a nursing home or whatever, I can just sit and watch all the cool shit that I've done when I was a young guy. Um, and it just obviously took off, and I hadn't meant for that to happen. Mate, I've had my YouTube channel, this podcast, for about three years, and I'm only just bypassing a thousand subscribers. Never mind getting that many in three weeks. That's that's elite. It just shows you the appetite for people to watch that type of stuff, that kind of extremism, yeah. that that kind of action movie kind of content. That's amazing. But I know through your story, from what I know of you so far, life wasn't always work three hours a day from Indonesia no. and then explore the most beautiful country in the world and document it for yeah. hundreds of thousands to see. I know it has been a roller coaster. So can we take it back yeah. to what life was like in Cumbernauld, Scotland? Sure. So growing up, I grew up in an estate called South Carbrain. So you get Carbrain, North Carbrain, South Carbrain. Um, I mean, growing up, everyone used to always say Carbrain was rough. If you Anyone outside Carbrain used to be like, don't go to Carbrain. They, they, they kind of tag like it was, Car brainers will steal your trainers. You know that. And that was that was a tagline for car brain. Excuse me. But I mean, you know what it's like. Love the yourself. I never ever found it rough. You know. I don't know if it's because that that, that was my surroundings. I don't know. I'm just used to it. Yeah, I, I had a great childhood. I loved it. You know the the typical council estate guy from the the nineties when you're out with your mates, you're hammering a couple of pieces of wood together, turning it into a ramp and then flying off the ramp on your, your mountain bikes and stuff, you know, it was just the typical kind of stuff that we used to uh, love to do. I love that, mate. I have a very similar upbringing, as as you know. I want to talk about your first job as a milk yep. boy. Do you think yes. being a milk boy <clears throat> and being outdoors and having to get up at a certain time every every morning kind of instilled this kind of militarized ethos in you well that kind of ethos i have to accredit my mum my mum is like seven so i'm 36 right now my mum's 76 she had me when she was like 40 um but my mum is like old school uh world war ii baby you know she was born like a year after the world war ii ended my, my granda was in the world war and he was a hard bastard to hit her with a big army belt and all that you know that typical kind of shit from back in the day 
uh, I mean, my mom was quite tough in that kind of way, but my mom was a grafter. Uh, she was a cleaner, but she would literally, you know, break her back to provide for her kids. She would work like three to five jobs a day. She would seven days a week. You know, she was she was an absolute grafter. She always wanted to like the best trainers, the best, you know, the best stuff. Then going nice holidays once a year. We used to religiously go on holiday on the eighth of September every year for two weeks. You know, she always made sure that we had a good life. We, and I never felt poor or anything like that. We always had plenty of like, good food tables, silver side, you know, every Sunday was a roast and all that shit. So I, I always felt kind of good. It was definitely my mum that instilled the the hard in me because she was a grafter. Oh, is a grafter, sorry. It's weird how when kids like us or, or, or people that grew up in our surroundings who tend to go on this kind of social mobility journey from one kind of social class to the next um, through improvement in financial security or improvement in life experience or opportunity, a lot of people seem to let go of their working class roots and adopt the, the kind of tastes and traits and skills of like the middle class. But in fact, yeah. like it just shows you what working class traits really have, what, what kind of weight that holds uh, in terms of discipline, grit, resilience, the ability to bounce back, yeah. the ability to yeah. actually provide for others when you're struggling yourself and being able to mask that. Because like you said, your mom was breaking her back to provide for you, but you never even noticed that. Like you never realized it was quite no, tough at all. I, I never noticed it, mate. Yep. Never noticed it. And I it's think only now that I'm a... older, I'm like, holy shit, you know, it's only now that I'm older that I've noticed that, like, holy shit, she's really grafted for us, you know what I mean? It's so yeah. remarkable to see that. I'm the same with my dad, like, we did have food on the table most nights, mm-hmm. every single night. It wasn't the best yep. of food, but we were, we were we never went hungry. We always had clothes yeah. on our back, and we would go on caravan holidays, but we didn't realise yep. that they were taking out payday loans and working 100 hours a week to, to provide for that. Um, so yeah. that, that's truly remarkable of your, your, your mum. What about school? What was school like for you, mate? School, I, I was just average. You know, I, I, I was never dumb or anything. Uh, I, I was never the brightest. Um, when I, uh, what was it? When I had my exams, I got a two in chemistry, three in maths, four in English, and IT, physics, and French was like uh, fives. Physics was a six. The rest of them were five. So it was just really average. You know, it was nothing special. Um, I was never dumb. I just hated school. I, I didn't like being at school all day I was I'm too active you know I, I was the kid who used to either talk to everybody and put everyone off or when the teacher's talking to us I would be looking out the window like what am I going to do when I'm older you know what I mean like what kind of job do I want to do and what kind of life do I want to live I was always thinking I wanted to get out of the classroom. Do you think it's just the the kind of infrastructure of school didn't really serve you like sitting down still working often in isolation rarely in groups Studying by yourself, sitting down, yep. being instructed all the time, being told how to think, how to act, um, having to ask for permission to go to things like toilet. Do you think mm-hmm. your learning style or the way that you interact with the world is very different to how we're taught at school? Absolutely. And, and I never realized this until I got to the army. And the army's training method or teach method is 100% suits me to a T. So in the army, what, they, what my boss, uh, Captain Johnson, he used to always say to me, uh, tell me and I will forget. Show me and I will remember. Let me and I will understand. And that's that's it. That is 100% how I learn. If you tell me something, right, this, that, equals this, I'm going to forget that in, in five minutes' time. You know? um, if, if I, so I'm. what you could really say is, you know what I would best learn from? I would best learn watching a YouTube video 
as opposed to a teacher telling me, you know, or reading from a book. I hate reading. I do read nowadays. I mean, I really hate it. Um, I really learn much faster watching watching something uh, practically playing out, you know, in, in live time. Awesome, mate. I love to hear how integral your mum was in terms of a female role model in the household. What about your dad? Did you have a role model? Yeah, so my dad was, like, yeah well, yes and no. Uh, obviously, no dad's fault. So my dad was a financial advisor, very successful. When they they broke up when I was around five, uh, we stayed in you know the council estate, and my dad went away and got this big fancy house at the back end of Kandora, you know, big fancy beamer and all that. We never had that stuff, but my dad definitely would have been. A role model in my life, definitely. But we had that kind of relationship where, you know, it's like I'm actually going through it myself with my son. Um, we break up. Mum just thinks, how can I shaft him, you know, and then stop me from going to see my dad. Um, and if, even if you ask me, what, why did you guys break up? She'll just say, oh, he was a bastard. And you go, right, that's fair enough. But why was he a bastard? Like, what made you break up? She can't tell you why they broke up. And my dad's like, Ryan. I just simply left her and it broke her heart and that was that. He's like, I never done anything, you know, I never cheated or hit her. <laughs> it was just the way it is, you know. So uh, the the negative side of my mum is that, like, she would literally be sitting there like, right, you better phone him now and tell him you never want to see him again. Tell him to stop coming to the door, you know. So you'd, literally, you'd be dying to say to your dad, oh, I love you, dad. Can't wait to see you, can't wait to see you on Saturday. But your mum would be there like, fucking tell him you don't want to see him. And, you know, so you'd be, it was horrific in that sense. Uh, definitely. <laughs> definitely didn't look up there in that sense it was a nightmare um Matt, the, shit, the crazy thing is sorry on you go after you mate yeah i was just going to say that the, the crazy and sad thing is it's literally like my ex-missus has bought my mom's fucking guidebook you know because my son <laughs> is now going through <laughs> my son is now going through that he's playing the role that i played as a child and now i'm playing the role my dad when i was a child it's like fuck it's like groundhog day you know I don't mean to laugh at that, but the, the, the guidebook analogy is hilarious. Um, <laughs> one of my toxic traits is pulling themes that may not actually be themes or may not actually be thematic. But what I'm thinking about when I think about your experience there is you having certain emotions, but being told to mask them and change those emotions. Mm. Have you yep. normalized that behavior or did you ever normalize that behavior, especially being in the army? Like perhaps feeling lonely, feeling sad, feeling melancholy, feeling depressed, feeling unhappy, but having to put on a different caricature. Um, do you know, I can imagine you know that what? early life experience would kind of train you for that. I well, do you know what? That's, that is a fantastic question. So I, I think these kids, I was so sad. Like I used to cry, I'm a little kid, I used to cry some nights. And my mom would be like, what's wrong with you? And I would say, oh, like I miss my nana because my nana had died. You know what I mean? Like my nana had died like four years previously or whatever. Um, and wasn't even a thought in my mind, to be honest. I was so young. It was actually because I missed my dad. You couldn't say that. Your mum would just destroy you. You know what I mean? So um, I think just going through that for a young... And then finally, um, when I was 13... Don't know if I maybe could jump around too much here. When I was 13, I got to see my dad again one weekend because he came up to see me. And then after that, my mum went mental. And I thought, oh, dad, there's no point coming this. No worth living this. And then when I was 15, I went to see him for another two weekends in a row. And my mum went nuts, but at that point, I was like, you know what, fuck this. Why should I have to live my life sad just to make you happy? I was like, this isn't happening anymore. And I literally packed my bags and fucking the second weekend after meeting my dad at 15, I packed my bags and went and stayed with him. And my mum was like, well, you've hurt me so much. And she trying to explain, I was like, you literally hurt me from I was five years old till I was 
15 years old and you didn't give a shit about that. So why should I now give a shit about me hurting you when all I'm really doing is going to see my dad, you know? <laughs> so it was just like that kind of toxicity. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I'm, to add to that. I, I think that, I mean, I don't, I've, I've done loads of frontline fighting in Afghanistan over the period of years. Um, and like I don't have PTSD whatsoever, like not even in the slightest. And here's the thing with me not getting to see my son now. Like, I've now got it in my mind. I'm like, do you know what? I've lived through this. I know that when you get to 15 and 16, you want to go and see your dad again. And my son and I have already spoke this year, but he then got blocked. Uh, we can cover that as well, no problem. Um, he then got blocked from speaking to me. But so now he knows that I love him and I'm dying to see him. And I've always been sending him birthday Christmas presents via someone else. Uh, and now he knows that. He's like, oh, is that how I got my Hugo Boss shoes? I was like, yeah. He's like, oh, thanks, Dad. You know? And uh, But his mum found out we were talking to each other on like FaceTime and stuff and through Facebook and she, she blocked us and all that. So, um, but I've got it in my mind now. Like, I'm totally, f- I don't like to say this in this way. It's, you have to really understand what I'm trying to hear. I'm fine that I don't see my son. Obviously, I miss him and stuff, but I just know in my mind when it gets to 15, 16, 17, 18, and he gets his own mind, I know we're going to meet again. And in and worst case scenario, my military, the, the military, sorry, really put into me, always think, what is the worst case scenario? And then what are you going to do in that? So the worst case scenario for me is my son gets to 18, whatever and says dad i don't ever want to see you again that's the worst case scenario so i've already prepared for that since you know the last five ten years i've already prepared if my son ever says that to me but his mom hasn't prepared for the day when he turns 16 and says i'm gonna go and see my dad and she's just gonna crumble you know because i've seen it happen with my mom and um i don't want to see it. i don't want anything bad to happen to her i have no ill feelings to walk, even though she's doing this to us now i'm not uh i'm not a kind of spiteful person i'm just like yeah whatever because yeah, I've lived through it, but yeah, that, that's the kind of the way it is, mate. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's the circumstances, but there is a lesson and there is a a highlight in that that you have that you said prepared yourself for the best and worst case scenarios. Um, yeah. that's amazing to hear, and a really good, a, a amazing listener that the the lesson sorry that the listener can take away. Yeah. I'm thinking about my childhood and. I didn't face that circumstance, but I remember being conditioned by my dad and his ways of thinking. What he said was gospel and yeah. um, seeing the world through his extended lens. But like you said, when I became 15 or 16, much like your son, well, yeah. you start to interact with more groups of people. You start to understand about your own morality and your own values, and you, yeah. you then have the choice to decide what is right and what's wrong. But before that, yeah. you're just so clouded by the judgment of your, your role models in the house. And whatever they say That's is right. always gospel and whatever, right? Is, is, yep. is right, sorry. Um, so I'm and you're on your behalf, I'm looking forward to, for that day when your your son starts to make sense of the world um, and yep. starts to have more intel to make those informed decisions. And I'm sure the fact that you're online and accessible, that you'll be able to see what an amazing person that you are, amazing father figure you are, an amazing role model you are, and hopefully interacts with you then. Yeah, thanks, mate. That when we got in touch. Me. And, and sorry for the listeners, if you hear me going <clears throat> every two seconds, I do apologise. It's not nervous or anything. I live in Jakarta and it's number one most polluted city in the world right now. And everybody in this entire city, about 20 million people, have got a cough right now. So I do apologise. Um, That's a poor excuse, mate, because annoyed, Glasgow's number two. You're conditioned for this. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing with Indonesians, actually, because we have the air application here. And if you look at Glasgow, it's... The number is at two, 
and and you know, we oh my god, the emissions are so high, and over here it's two hundred and eighty-three, and nobody's bothered. You know, it's like such a different uh, what? <laughs> the scale. I know. <clears throat> so, what was life like after school? Then you left uh, as a teenager before yeah. <clears throat> um, completing the complete tenure of school. What happened next? Yeah, so I, I was a Christmas leaver, so I'd done my fourth year exams, but I was still thin after the summer. I still went back. My birthday's in December, uh, so I was a, one of those Christmas leavers, but I never went back. I just went to college uh, and done a course in business management. It was really just to get me to school, to be honest. I just didn't want to be there. Um, and I did do that for the six months, and then after that, at this point, I was living with my dad. Pardon me. And um, when it got, yeah, after about six months in college, my dad got a, a financial advisory job over in Portugal. He's like, you want to come, you want to move to Portugal? And I was like, right. So I moved over to Portugal. <clears throat> and as a 15-year-old, I got a job as uh, working in a Scottish restaurant. It was it was an albufera called The Kilt, The Kilt, just in case anyone has ever been there. Albufera Strip, you come down to the crossroads. So on the left-hand side, big Scottish bar, Kilt and Kilt. And I was I've doing been there. The I was like, oh, no. <clears throat> No, I was in Albuquerque last year. Oh, man, I was the little chef in there. Oh, not the little, the little kind of Sioux boy. But I mean, look, see, after a month, they were getting you to bang on steaks, steak and ale pies. And I mean, they had me making square sausage with my bare hands. And this, oh, it was just, it was brilliant. The guys were great. It was graft. I mean, chefing was graft. That gave me a real appreciation for the kitchen. I was in there at like five again, like the milk room. In there at five in the morning, I was like mixing kilograms upon kilograms of meat with my hands, putting in all the seasoning, the eggs, and you have to mush it through with your, your, your forearm or like Popeye at the end of it. Uh, and then having to use the press to press them into burgers and all this kind of stuff. It's phenomenal. Uh, and then I, I was getting to work at like six in the morning, and I was leaving at like three in the morning. Just I was doing that like five, six days a week. It was pretty intense. Um, you would just like sleep on top of one of the glass freezers at lunchtime just to get your head down quickly or you're for the evening shift came in and that. it was wild yeah and just it taught me so much i'll be fair from what i remember i'm guessing it was the same when you were working there it was like a kind of stag right. do kind of party central right yeah. did you also yeah. work hard play hard oh yeah so uh, it was wild so there was a nightclub called kiss did you ever go to kiss yeah i think it's still called that yeah Okay, so I used to go to Kiss pretty much after work, and then like it was the kind of culture where you would go into work absolutely wasted. The boss didn't mind because he was still wasted, and it was like everyone just acts sober in the, in the kitchen because we can see the outside. You know, that was it. And we like if was was I mean I was fine because I was only about fifteen, sixteen at the time, so I didn't really get the hangovers. I was still you know I could drink and everything was fine. Not like nowadays I had two drinks and I'm dying for a week. Um, but yeah, if, if they were, we would always look after each other. If one guy was like, mate, I just can't keep up the day, we'd always take up the slack. And then vice versa, <laughs> they would take up the slack for us, you know, if we were too rough. So it was, a really, it was just a great way, guys. So what brought you back to the UK or brought you back to uh, yeah, wanted, Scotland? Yeah, I wanted to join the army, mate. I was just dying. I was partied out and I remember just sitting down after being partied and I was just like, yeah, this has been fun. It's been great, but. I ain't going to spend the rest of my life here just, you know, becoming a waste or just partying life away. So I went, went to go back and join the army. Now, I used to have really bad eyesight. Um, my eyesight was long-sighted, and I was plus 7 in this one and plus 7.5 in this one, which, I mean, if you're long-sighted, you're supposed to see things far away. I can see shit anywhere. I was lit. My specs were about that thick, and I'm not even exaggerating. Um, so I, I've been preparing for ages. I knew since I was about 13, 14, I wanted to go to the army. And um, when I went to go in at 16, 
I passed everything and they came back and said, your eyesight is unsuitable for regular army service. I was like, what? I went, and it's the infantry as well. <clears throat> I applied for the Argyles um, and the infantry's got like the worst eyesight, you know, um, entrance. And I was like, how can I not even get into that? And I applied again a couple of months later. It says, your eyesight remains unsuitable for regular army service. But the weird thing was when I went They've got all the regulations, the the requirements, and like your eyesight's fine. You're still a good bit above it. Is like so it's not that. And they even contacted the army to get a kind of update, and they're like, "Well, oh, you keep knocking this guy back, but he, he doesn't actually think it." And then again, I got the third letter saying your eyesight means unable for army service. So, excuse me. Uh, my mate Scott, my best mate Scott Watson, was like, hey, "Why don't you join the TA?" And I was like, what? He went, mate, the TO take. I was like, I said, how can I join the TA? It's the same requirements as the army. If I join the TA and go to Iraq, it's the same as going to Iraq with a fucking regular, you know? He's like, mate, just try and get in. Mate, long story short, if I can even say this now, I went down and joined the TA, Argyle and Southern Highlanders, down in Cumbernauld, behind the bus depot. And I got in right away. And I was like, I said to the doctor, how can I get in? Like, is my eyesight okay? She's like, yeah, it's fine. And I was like, why didn't I get in the regs? And she's like, I have no idea. So I'd done the, the Argyle and Southern Highlanders A for four years. And my dad, <clears throat> me back in the day, in the Scots Guards, and he hated army life. He only done six months and had to get my granite to come out. He hated it. Uh, so he all had always said to me, we man, the army's a great place to be if you love it, but it is a, it's the worst place to be for four years if you hate it. And he kept telling me to join the TA first and see if I like it. And, and I did been in the TA. I just like it. I wanted to go down there and learn shit. And you would go down on a Tuesday night and you'd be like, you'd be getting a Jack Daniels and Coke behind the bar playing pool and watching EastEnders. And I'm like, well, I could have been doing this at home. You know, what am I learning about the army here? It was British, yeah. I had some good time, but it just it didn't feel like the army to me. It just felt like guys are going down to get some free money. It was a little bit shitty. Um, I didn't like being in the TA. So then what happened was I got a call potential letter from Iraq. And I was like, what? So I then took that letter in to the recruitment office, and I was like, guys, you've sent me three letters here saying I can't get in the army because, you know, my eyesight's unsuitable, blah, 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 but you've now called me up and I'm in the TA, and the guy was like, what the fuck? The recruitment (laughs) officer was just like, I have no, he's like, mate, this has never happened to me, don't know why you're not getting in. So he then put all that forward, and they were like, right, we will now accept you in. So I then left the TA. So I didn't actually didn't get sent to Iraq. I just left the TA so I could hurry up and join the regs. And I, if I join the regs, I'll get in the TA anyway. Um, yeah, sorry, I'll get in Iraq anyway. That was my thought. So I joined the regs, but I actually then joined uh, the artillery because I saw the job as a forward observer. And I was like, that looks the bollocks. And so everyone thinks when you say artillery, I thought this, uh, obviously you're just there at the big guns and you don't get in any of the action. But they have a role in artillery called forward observers. And it's the best job I've ever had. Um, so you want to go out with the infantry, you're involved in all the firefights, but then when the boss or the sergeant turns around and says, like, we need air support or we need heavy fire, you're then the one that's in charge. You stop, obviously, firing with your rifle, <clears throat> and you then obviously find the locations using a, a compass, laser range finders for distance, blah, 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 and you then call in the artillery so we can call in mortars, or a light, light gun, heavy gun, GMLRI, like the rockets you see coming out the back of a truck, it looks like a big rectangle, and the rockets are like, you know what I mean? Flying out. Yeah. That's called uh, MGMLRS. Um, you could do Apache. It's just a brilliant job. Just So when the, the bombs come in, it's our job to look through the binoculars, and there's little graticals in it. 
And for every one gratico of space at one kilometer, that equals 100 meters on the ground. So you would then say, right, you would know, you know, right, I'm, you know, 500 meters away. So you know that that's 200 meters in a grat. And you would say, like, left 200, up 100, and you would bring the round, the bomb on. And then we're on target. You would say, like, you know, 120 rounds fire for effect. And then all six guns would just fire in that position. It was fucking phenomenal. I loved it. I know we'll speak about your current trading career shortly, um, yep. but I already see a parallel between um, your role as a forward observer and um, forex trading or, or trading. You were talking yep. about these graticals, these kind of units of measurement that signaled um, another unit of measurement or signaled distance or range or whatever else in between. That seems like a skill that you've learned through the army that you've transgressed onto trading. So I know like for trading, it's like pattern recognitions. You look for signs yep. and, and, and signals um, of what's to come next. Um, do you think there's yep. a kind of correlation between the two? Well, not with the, the whole graphical thing, but I'll tell you what there is definitely a correlation with and how I've ended up becoming a successful trader is discipline. And just waiting, you, you have to, in trading, you have to be a sniper and not a machine gunner. People just think, the more trades you place, the more money you're going to make. And it is absolutely not the case. The, the less trades you make, but you pick good quality trades, you will then definitely make money. Um, but if you just, you sometimes you sit here for a week and I'm like, I don't like anything. And even when I do my live, so I do two live trades every single day. So all our students can watch me and they can copy my trade at the exact same time as I do it live on screen. Um, and I'll say to them, I'll say, look, see if you are looking at the charts and you're like, is that an entry? Well, it's, it's rejecting here, but does it look like an entry? Is it? Is it not? I say, that is not a trade. When you know it's an entry, you can see it right away. Like, hell there. You, you don't even have to think about it. Is this my entry? You can see it a mile away if you just have a couple of trick parameters based on candle patterns and areas of rejection and blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's definitely helped with that, the patient side, absolutely. I like that. The ability to self-regulate and self-control because then... And in the army as a forward observer, you make one wrong move and you've you've completely ruined the mission or the conquest yep. or the uh the, the, the aim or the target. Um whereas yep. what you could do is just throw or um deploy hundreds of rockets or uh large shells and miss and give your position away and ruin the entire uh, mission. I I love how there's synergies between the yep. two. And you can also, with the forward observer stuff, I mean, it's not just about calling the bombs, which is actually very easy. Um, you then, if you're with platoon here, there may be a platoon up what we call left flanking, going around and peeling around to the left and left flanking the enemy. So if you're calling in rounds to know where your friendly forces are on the other side, and you also need to know if there's any aircraft in the air so that you don't, you know, essentially knock an Apache out there with, with one of your own bombs. So there's, while you're in the middle of a firefight and there's rounds coming in, you can hear the tracers zipping by your head, RPGs blowing up beside you. At the same time, you're having to um, deconflict. Is there, any air, is there anything in the air that have to move the jets to the left? Which I would do that, but I would deconflict it with someone who's called a JTAC. I would give them information, guys. I'm going to bring in the guns from this area here, give them the, the bearing um, altitude of XYZ. You would then coordinate the jets to the left of that or the right of that and give them an area where not to fly in and then you need to plot your friendly forces on the map and you have to you have to remember the infantry who are let's just say in this example doing the left flank they're all advancing so you need to know where their position is and there you have to keep 
asking them what is your position because they're so engrossed in a firefight they're obviously going to forget you know they're not going to remember 100 percent of the time to up two of their position so you have to really be on the ball or you could end up killing your own guys uh, very easily very easily so uh, that brings uh, an element of stress which you have to remain calm which definitely does help in, uh, with trading holy shit can we speak about one of your most extreme days in iraq what would the day in the life look like uh Iraq. Uh, I never done Iraq with army. So when I done Iraq, that was when I was I had already got out of the army and I was doing what's oh, called, okay. called. There's loads of names for it: close protection, um, PMC, private military contractor, bodyguard. You most commonly know it as. Um, I only done so, that. I never done a tour of duty of Iraq. It was only I done two frontline tours of Afghanistan. Okay, so what would be one of the most extreme days that you would have in Afghanistan in that case? My bad. Yeah. I know right away. So we were in a firefight one day for 33 hours. It just continued for 33 hours. Uh, like there was what? people doing like runs back to bring ammunition, bring it back on like a quad bike and all that. Uh, and just go, it was just absolutely wild. And we were in this ditch up up to our nipples in water. It was pitch black at night. We'd <laughs> run out of water, run out of food. We'd run out of ammunition. And uh, it was coming over the ICOM that we were going to get surrounded. And what had happened is, because we had run out of we literally had no ammunition left. We were fucked. Um, and because we had no ammunition left, obviously weren't firing back at the Taliban. So the Taliban kept firing, and then when they had, there was no return fire. We thought that we had bogged out. We call it bogged out when you, when you basically fuck off and retreat. And they thought we had bogged out, so they then stopped firing. And so then we just then uh, waded through the river all the way back. We never came out the river. We just stayed in the river, so we had protection of the bundling. All the way down to get back out at the time, but yeah, probably the most extreme day. Holy shit! What was going through your mind during those thirty-three hours? How could you remain calm, knowing that your life was almost ended imminently? Uh, well, well, do you know what? I'm sure everyone who's been in the army will tell you the same. See, your first and second contact, maybe you shit your pants because that's the first time you've ever been two-way range. You know, before that, it's just in a range that doesn't fire back at you. But it sounds ridiculous. I'm sure, you know, other infantry lads or, you know, whoever's been in the front line will say the same thing. You actually realise how dangerous it is at the time. You don't think, oh, fuck, I can die in a minute. You're just so wrapped up in the moment and getting the rounds down. And is everyone all right? Have you got ammo? Is there any casualties? And fucking where are we going next? You know, you're just so wrapped up in all that. And it's weird after about, it's definitely two to, two to three weeks, it kind of becomes the norm, you know. Um, I remember one night being up on the, up in the roof part my sandbags at the the checkpoint we were at it's called uh, pb jaker and uh, i was on the satellite phone to my sister and the next minute it was just and that was the the taliban were attacking our checkpoint and i was like oh fuck's sake ali i need to go and then just they fired a chinese rocket that exploded in our compound it didn't hit any of the guys our compound did like a helipad part and in the living quarters with tents and stuff and it had hit the helipad part, but it obviously was a fucking a mega explosion. And my sister was like, what the fuck is that? And I was like, oh, don't worry, I need to go. She's like, don't fucking worry. <laughs> and it was just like total chaos because right below me, well, I was on the roof and right below that was the Sanger. And uh, there was a couple of Gurkhas in the Sanger with like fucking 50 caliber, like just like, dum, 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 getting the fucking rounds down. And obviously my sister can hear all this and she was flapping. But I remember like I was just absolutely fine. I'm not trying to sound like a fucking hero because I'm not, but I know that all frontline guys know exactly what I'm talking about here without trying to sound as some fucking SAS or some shit, you know. It just becomes the norm, is what I'm trying to say. And you don't really think about your life in danger. That's 
that's hilarious me the fact that you were just like ali i, I need to go as if someone was at the front door Aye. like you know when you're not yeah, like, yeah. calling someone the postman's <laughs> at the door or something like that i, I need to I know, go i know but instead of a postman it's a fucking taliban <laughs> <laughs> that was mental it's crazy how you just become so um hyper normalized to violence and to conflict and to uh emergency it's, it's crazy Aye. um do you remember some of the specific lowlights of being in Afghanistan? Uh, I mean, I fucking loved it, mate. There was obviously shit days. So I was on what's called Herrick 10, 2009 summer, and that was apparently, I'm not saying this, this is what I've been reading online, it was the bloodiest conflict that the British Army have been involved in since um, Second World War. And that's the tour that we that the lieutenant colonel, the commanding officer of the Welsh Guards, was killed. And he was blown up 150 meters from our our checkpoint. He was actually I was actually the Welsh guards at this point, <clears throat> the Jam Boys, first battalion Welsh guards, and he was coming up to see us at our checkpoint in like a, a convoy of Vikings, and they drove over an IED. It was literally 150 meters. It's the same road we used to patrol down all the time, so it must have been the weight of his vehicle that set it off because we used to walk up and down that all the time, um, and he got blown up and killed. So yeah, that's probably the most standout ones um did you witness yeah. that happening or did you just get, get did you just hear the bang and understand it's mate, I just heard the bang mate yeah heard the bang Aye. Uh, so when I was coming home on my R&R to come and pick you up <coughs> me they come and pick you up in these vehicles called Mastiffs and I was going home on R&R uh, they were taking me back into Camp Bastion from the Shalaman checkpoint nine. and uh, as we're going back as I got in the vehicle the back tyre was like you get you get obviously two back tires on each side, um, and the outside back tire was all bent and mangled to fuck, and the vehicle was still driving using the other tires. And I was like, "What the fuck?" And the guy's like, "This here." He's like, "Yeah, mate, we just fucking had an IED on the way in." <laughs> I was like, "Fucking hell!" So we got in that vehicle and, and, and didn't get hit with an IED on the way back out. But yeah, it's fucking you know. During your tours in Afghanistan, I'm sure. Or I'm guessing you interacted with the Afghani communities and the civilians. What were they like? Yep. What was their kind of perception of what was going on around them? Yeah. So you got a mixed bunch. You got a mix of Afghanis that were very friendly and like liked us. You know, they were glad that we were there. And then you get the ones that are kind of more sided with the Taliban and think we're all bricks, you know. So it was very varied. You know, you had a thing where they would make this bread. We used to call it tonio bread because they used to stack, like literally put this dough on the ground and press stamp on it with feet to flatten it out and like on the mud, and then they would bang it in this kind of oven on the side of the wall. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and then we would eat that. But you knew if you ate that, you would get the shits, like you were fucked. So, but if they invited you in for tea and and bread and stuff, it was kind of impolite not to eat it. So we would all take a turn. Like it's your turn this week, mate, to get the fucking shits, you know. So, <laughs> so we would, it would be someone's turn for toenail bread. We would do that. Um, and the one people, when I was talking to the interpreter, he was saying, "Oh, we're having a conversation with this particular guy." One thing, um, and he was saying that they they actually liked the British soldiers more than the American soldiers. I mean, we asked why was that. Uh, it was down to things like etiquette, it turned out. So when American soldiers rocked up, they would be wearing gloves, wearing sunglasses, you know, they would kick in someone's door, supposed to chap it and say, hi, could we just come in and have a look around? Whereas we used to interact with the locals. If we were shaking someone's hand, we would always take sunglasses off, we would always take our gloves off, you know, skin to skin. We would always look them in the eye and we're speaking. So it was small things like that with etiquette. In, in Muslim countries, after you shake someone's hand, you put your hand in your you know, left breast next to your heart, you know, salam alaikum, and then you would do this. 
<clears throat> we used to do that kind of stuff. We used to call it hearts and minds, and it, it really did work. <clears throat> um, on the, fl- on the flip to that. Sorry. Yeah. After you, mate. No, I was just, I was just going to say, so, pardon me. I've always been someone who is just very good with languages. Uh, I, I don't know where it's came from, but I was being able to pick up languages. When I lived in Portugal, I could speak very good Portuguese. And when I went to Afghanistan, uh, I used to learn 10 words a night via the interpreter. Um, and I used to be able to speak to the locals in Pashto. They speak Farsi and Dari, but the Taliban, because the Taliban are actually Pakistani, they're not Afghanis, they're Pakistani. So they speak uh, Pashto. So I could actually speak Pashto um, at a very good level. That's incredible, mate. That's incredible. What about the um the civilians that were more sided with the Taliban? What were your interactions with them? Uh, so it was just things like if we were driving in the vehicles. I remember we were going through the bazaar. Bazaar just means market. And we were driving market one time, and I was doing top cover uh, with the GPMG. And as we were going through, there was this this wee chogi guy, and he had like a brick. As he saw us drive by, he kind of pretended to throw the brick, like. <clears throat> But, and we're like, so we kind of have a lot of a laugh with him and stuff, you know, like we'd point the pistol at him and he'd go up with a stone and, and all that kind of shit. So it's, it's, if we came across a dick like that, what we used to do is like, if we were close to him, we would snap a glow stick, ah, we'd throw the glow stick at him and he would like catch it thinking it was roasting hot and he would shit himself and then he would realise it's the glow stick and then he would laugh and we would laugh, you know, so we kind of broke the ice that way, we weren't trying to be mean to them, but we're like, a little bit of fuck off at the same time, but trying to make them know at the same time, look, we're actually all right. We're not here to fucking harm you, you know. Uh, if you're fine with us, we're fine with you, you know. So it was a little bit of that. Uh, I loved it. I thought the locals were great. And had lunch with the Taliban one time. <clears throat> they came into our compound, and obviously they had to meet with the boss. I, I didn't do any of the talking. It was all the officer stuff and all that. But we were still in for the lunch. And, um, and then they the boss was like, has anyone got a fucking dessert? And my auntie, I'm sure my auntie Jan, sent me a Jamaica cake in one of my parcels. So I was like, boss, I've got a Jamaica cake. He's like, go fucking get it. <laughs> so I was like running running off to my tent with Hamilton with like all my little chocolates and, and iron brew and shit would sent from back home. <clears throat> I ran down to this tent and I was like sharing this Jamaica cake with the Taliban. And it's like what we call in our condor moment where like everything just pauses and you stop and just think, what the fuck? And I remember thinking, what the fuck? Here's like a guy from Cumbernauld in the middle of Afghanistan sharing Jamaica cake with the Taliban. Like, it's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just it was a crazy experience. So I remember that. I am... At a little point, that was very cool. <laughs> that is mental. That's like seeing like a, aye. Aye, like an, 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 a member of ISIS cook. <laughs> I'm a member of ISIS, uh, like tucking into a, a caramel wafer. I'm <laughs> really. I, I know. That was it, man. It was brilliant. It was mental. And they're all oh, like, Taliban. Good, good, very good, very good. You know, it's funny. It's... <clears throat> oh, that is uh, mental. Yeah. That is mental, mate. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> That's crazy. I, I can't believe that story. I remember the Taliban eating Jamaica cake that your, your auntie sent to you. That's, that's brilliant. So, when did you decide to leave the army? At what point? Yeah, mate. So, <clears throat> excuse me. When I joined, mate, I was a 25-year man all day long. And anyone that knew me in the army would always say, oh, Max, mad for it, right? I was always a guy who was mad for it because I fucking loved the army. So I think I've got a little thing there. Sorry. <clears throat> um, so I loved the army. And I was definitely a 25-year man. And uh, after, like, my fifth year in the regs, uh, I was just like, fuck this index. Um, the army became shit. They were putting you onto this turbo shit pension. 
that your pension that they were they were forcing you to sign, which now everyone who signed it is now getting their old pension back because we were all forced to sign it, you know, with the Sergeant Majors, yeah, you've got no choice, get it fucking signed. And now it's like, well, we did it. You've always got a choice for your pension. You don't have to sign it. So they're all getting their money back now, finally. <clears throat> um, but what was it? What happened there? Aye, and then and then just all this pink and fluffy way. I, mean, I preferred it the old school way there. If you fucked up, you would get taken around the back and get a dick and be like, don't fucking do that again. You'd be like, yeah, all right, no worries. It turned all pink and fluffy to the point where it was all very PC. And um, yeah, it was like, so back when I first joined, someone could come into a class and be like, right, guys, today we're going to crack on with fucking NBC or whatever, you know? And it's like, nowadays, if you get charged, like, find an army, it's called an Agai. Agai is a military charge. You get Agai um, for being like, right, guys, today we're going to. You get, I get it for saying guys, and it's not in case there's a woman there who feels offended, maybe you have a female medic, it's not for that. It's in case there's a man there who doesn't identify as being a man and you've offended them. I was just like, fuck this, this is not the arm I want to be a, a part of anymore. And for anyone who's watching who may be gay or lesbian, I honestly couldn't give a shit. Um, we had gay guys in the battery and Reg, you know, and we were both having a good laugh. Nobody cared about that. It's just that the army just got so pink and fluffy and bullshit. And it was like, oh, you know, there's no need for that in the army when you are in a trench fucking fixing bayonets. You don't need to be like, well, who offended by saying guys? You know, it's fucking... It's, it's, um, your pay was getting shit, so your pay was going to be capped at whatever you were at. You were, They were literally saying you, you aren't getting another prize unless you obviously moved up in rank. But it used to be that you would get a pay rise or the whole army would get two pay rises a year when I first joined. You would get a pay rise at the new tax year, and then each individual person would get a pay rise on the month that they first joined. So mine would have been August and then April. Um, and then that stopped after like two years. Um, so you weren't getting your pay rises until you moved up in rank. And it was, and it used to be like a, a full screw would get 41 grand. They were bringing that down to like 27 grand. And I was like, fuck that. It was just a, yeah, it was just totally shit. They just made me not want to be there anymore. It was horrible. <clears throat> so what was the natural progression to becoming a bodyguard in Iraq? Mm. Right, so... <clears throat> excuse me. So everyone and their dog who's leaving now goes into what's called close protection. Everyone wants to do it. And because and you need to pay, when you get out, you have to pay like a kind of five, six grand worth of courses. You need to go and do a firearms course, a medics course, blah, blah, blah. And it costs a lot of money. You're not always guaranteed a job because you've got, you've got everybody's fighting for it. And if they've got Indeed, a guy like me who was, you know, an ex-Royal uh, Royal Artillery Fall Observer, and then you've got a guy from, you know, One Para or the Royal Marines, like same job. They're clearly going to pick the guy from fucking One Para or the Royal Marines. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's just the way the cookie crumbles. Um, so I wasn't going to do it. And on my second tour of Afghanistan, when I knew I was coming back and I was going to sign off, um, when I was in Bastion, Camp Bastion, before I was coming home, you get internet in Camp Bastion and you get like 30 minutes privilege on, you know, Facebook or call your family. Whatever. <laughs> I jumped on and it was an old family friend called Arne Campbell. And um, back in the day, he was, uh, he was TA, but he was Paris TA, the Parachute Regiment TA, and then SAS TA. Um, and, and then because of his background, he was a boss. He was a project leader for, I can't mind the name of the company now, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Uh, he was a project team leader anyway for this private school firm over in Afghan. And we he used to babysit me when I was like five years old. My sister Dawn was his girlfriend's best mate. So if they were going out to the pub or whatever, a girl's night out and my sister had me, 
he would look after me until they got back. So he was obviously much older than me. And uh, we got much randomly on Facebook. He's like, wee man, is that you? I was like, fucking hell, Arnie. His name's Arnie Campbell. Hadn't seen him for years. We got talking. Uh, what are you doing now? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, I mean, I'm going to get out. He said, what are you going to do? He says, I don't know. He said, do you want to do CP, post protection? I was like, oh, mate, you need to fucking spend six grand. Everyone and their dog's doing it, and you're not guaranteed a job at the end of it. So I don't really know if I'm willing to risk spending all that money and, and doing it. And he's like, fuck that. He's like, I'll give you a job. Like, you want a job? I'll give you a fucking job right now. I was like, no way. He's like, legit, mate. So <clears throat> when I went back, when I finally went home, <coughs> excuse me, I had just done six months in Afghan. Um, I was on my month R&R. &R, um, and then I came back after that month R&R. &R, <clears throat> me what was it again uh, yeah so when you sign off the army you have to give a year's notice right but that was at the point it was 2012 and the army were uh, you could apply for redundancy and get or get out early if you applied for redundancy you still had to wait like a year you had to get you had to get approved first and blah 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 so it was going to take like a really long process i wouldn't have got out for about another year or maybe even more if i'd done the redundancy route um, however if you had signed off and you got a letter from your new employer saying that you have a guaranteed um, offer of employment, then they'd get you out. As soon as you get it, you'd be out. I can see you later. So I was like, <laughs> Arnie, can you please send this letter into the RCMO, the regimental, um, is that kind of the RCMO, I can't even mind what it stands for, oh, career management officer. Uh, so they sent that into him, uh, a guy called Andy Fuller. He's my favorite, he's a cracking guy. And, uh, and he was like, I can see you later, Mac. So I just de-kit, de-bombed, handed my kit in. And then, excuse me, that was in the Monday when I got back. I was based in Northern Ireland, Lisbon, uh, Thiepo Barracks. I got back on the Monday, and on Wednesday, I was flying straight back out to Afghan. Now, that was a fucker. <clears throat> Not that I cared, but I had a, a missus at the time and a little boy. And um, I just got back six months tour. And when the American company mailed me, they said it was six, six and one. So I assumed it was six weeks on, one week off. And I thought, that's a bit weird that you get one week off and have to fly back to Afghan. I was like, yeah, right, it's only six weeks on. Sometimes you do two months on, one month off. When I landed there, I said to my boss, how come we don't have come on return flights? And like, I got there in like the August, the October or something. And I was like, how come we return flights in like March? And he's like, six and one. And I was like, yeah, but shouldn't I have one in like November? And he's like, six months is March. And I was like, six fucking months. So it turned out my, I mean, I was so stupid I didn't confirm it first, but <laughs> so sorry guys, the pollution here is bloody terrible. Um, it was six months on one month off. So I then had to call my missus at home and like, you're going to fucking kill me. And she's like, what is it? Because she hated all this shit. She hated the army and hated all this shit anyway. She needed someone who's like with her 24 seven pampering and shit. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it turned out to be six months on one month off, and I was like, fuck, I'm here for another six months. <laughs> and you loved it? Yeah. <laughs> I loved it, man. It was fucking great. I learned salsa and everything. So me and my big, I met, I was in the gym one day, and uh, I, was, I was on this American base called Bagram Air Base, right? And Americans and French and blah, blah, blah. But there's like so many South American, American soldiers, right? And they're all mad for like salsa, bachata, and then you get like the line dancing group and all this kind of shit. So my big mate, Paul, he's a big, handsome bastard. Um, he, he had been there for years, and he's like, mate, let's go to fucking Salsa night. And I was like, Salsa, fuck off. I'm going to Salsa night. He's like, mate, let's go to Salsa night. I was like, all right, let's go. So we went around to Salsa night. I thought it was going to be like this gay kind of stuff. I thought, nah, I'm not really into this, mate. It's not my thing. It, it was not. 
like, we went into this room, mate, and it was like the starting scene of Dirty Dancing when she's carrying the watermelons and she backs off into the room and it's purple lights, everything's dark. People were like getting pregnant dancing, mate. I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is this? <laughs> it was just insane. And I had a North Face black jacket on with a Velcro big British flag in my arm. And then straight away, this... Uh, this uh, American pilot, her, she was from Venezuela. Her name was Veronica. She came straight up to me. She's like, do you know how to dance? And I was like, I don't have a fucking clue. And she's like, just follow me. And she was just, like, dancing the shit out of me. She was throwing me, me about like an empty tracksuit. And I was just like, this is <laughs> this is amazing. So I actually learned how to like dance salsa, bachata, merengue when I was in Afghanistan, which is pretty fucking random. <laughs> That's insane. That sounds like the perfect life for, like, a... Uh, kind of young, handsome, fit, uh, Afghani veteran. Uh, like that—that's not Afghani veteran, <laughs> Afghanistan veteran. Um, like you walked into the dream job, essentially. What? Uh, yeah. So what did, what did the uh, day in the life of a close protection slash bodyguard look like in that case? What was your actual role? Yeah. So when I there was different ground roles, and then the main one that I ended up taking over was like so the. U.S. Air Force, uh, they handed over all the security work, like all the Sanger bullshit work that soldiers don't want to do around the base. <coughs> they handed that over to Gurkhas. Now, they're not British Army Gurkhas, they're like Nepalese Army, ex-Indian Army Gurkhas. So I never knew. I thought you had to be in the British Army to be a Gurkha. It's not the case. It's a region in Nepal from the, re- the region. I think it's called Gurkali or something like that. If you're from the region of Gurkali, I could be mistaken, but I know it's... It may not be pronounced like that. Anyway, it's the same thing. Um, if you're from that region, then you are a Gurkha. Like you're a Ouija from Glasgow, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, so they were all like Indian Army Gurkhas. Uh, I mean, they were, they were they were a joke. They weren't anything British Army Gurkhas. They were clowns. But, um, so I took up the role of being like their manager for training. I used to train them on weapon systems, fucking how things are seen, like how you notice something, if it's camouflaged in the background, how can you spot it, you know? Shape, shine, shadow, silhouette, movement, blah, 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 all this bollocks. Um, <clears throat> teach them first aid, teach them um, Pierce fire maneuver, all this kind of shit. So we've done that. Um, then when, yeah, so after that, I'd done that for quite a while. <coughs> pardon me. And then obviously it was the same as every guy in the job, getting tons of shit from the missies. Oh, you need to come back. You're never here. Feels like I don't have a man and all this kind of bollocks. So at that point, I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? Because it was obviously good money. And uh, I've got a good mate called Daz Lowe, and he, he was ex-army, he was ex he had done Iraq, so I can't believe he'd done Afghan, and maybe done the big, the first Afghans when it was called Posca or some shit. <clears throat> he'd done them, um, and he was working in the pylons now with Balfour Beatty, and really seemed to get in the pylons, I don't know if it's still the same, but when I was there, he, even the first day when I actually got the job and we started training, they were like, yeah, if you don't know anyone in this job, you ain't getting the job, that's just how it works, you know? So I knew Daz, and he knew the recruitment guy who was in his regiment previously as well, uh, Mark. So I flew home from Afghan. Now, this, do you want to hear the story? This is a story. <clears throat> so I was three months into my six-month deployment, right? And it was gonna, it was like coming up to the December, and I wasn't going home until like again, my rotations coming around the kind of following March again. <clears throat> so I couldn't get home. And Dad was like, mate, I've got you an interview. They're like, all the interviews have been held in Derby. Uh, it's on this date. Let's just say it was the 11th of December, whatever it is. They're all being held on the date. Like, 
I was like, can you postpone as on like when's the next interview stage, mate? I'm gonna be home in March. Is there anything? He's like, mate, this is the last one. If you don't take this now, I can I can't get you in again because I've already like really fucking pushed the boat here to make sure that they get you in. I was like, oh no. <clears throat> so this up. I phoned my sister and I told her, I was like, Ali, I've got this fucking job interview. I need to come back and do it. So I, I gave my sister, Ali, my boss's telephone number in Afghan. I got her to phone my boss from Cumbernauld and say, oh, look, can you get a hold of Ryan? He's not answering his phone. Just tell him uh, his mum's not well. She's in the hospital. Like, can you get him to contact me ASAP? So my boss ran like, hey, what's going on? I was like, yeah, mate, I'm just around at the sign and he's like, Hey, you gotta call home, man. Your mom's in the hospital. I was like, ah, oh, fuck. So I called home. But oh, eh, so yeah, I called home while I was in the, while I was in the office, and obviously I know I knew they could hear me in the background. Um, and I was just like going through the motions with my sister. Ah, oh, you're fucking joking me. She all right? Oh, you're joking, you know. And he's like, what's up? I was like, oh, she's she's in a bad way. Blah blah blah. They're unsure. So he's like, okay, man. Hey, you gotta go home. You gotta go home, brother. So. If I got the job after the interview in December, the job wasn't starting until like the April or May, so I could come home and finish my contract, right? So I ended up, my boss let me go home to see her make sure for like 10 days to make sure my mum was right and blah, blah, blah. But actually, I'm sorry to say this, I just had fucking wing it, lads. It's not a nice thing to do, but it's a funny fucking story at the same time. I got home, went for the interview, got the job, flew back to Afghan, and you know, and everything was hunky-dory. And then, and because when I flew home for the interview, sorry, they obviously, if I took all my kit, they would be like, he's not coming back and we're fucked. So I was like, boss, look, I'm going to leave all my kit here. I'm literally taking you a chair, a change of clothes and just taking my little day sack, you know, on the plane. I'm going to leave all my kit here, all weapons, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, yeah, fucking sound. So they obviously knew that was coming because all my gear was there, my laptops and everything. <clears throat> so came home, got the job of Val for me and then flew back. And obviously when I went back in the March, I then obviously had told them, look, I'm going to hand in my notice, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and that was it. So that's the messed up story, how I got the job. <laughs> did, did they ever suspect that when you went home that one time, it was for a job interview? No. So I hope they don't see this. Because <laughs> I do really like yourself. the guys and they're going to be like, I was going to say, they're going to be like, here's the fucking scumbag and we like them. <laughs> You're a scumbag, mate. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> so no, the job with Balfour B on the the pylons, are they electricity yeah. pylons? Like constructing them, working yeah. on them? I so you get like uh, foundations, the guys that put the concrete foundations, the erectors, the guys that build the tower, like a kind of mechanical set, and then you get the the wiring gang that put in the wires. I was in the wiring gang. Um I remember on that new contract from Bewley to Denny or Denny to Bewley, however you want to look at it, a big five hundred kilovolts or whatever it was. And when I was down at um, Derby, at the training centre for Balfour Beatty, like, it would be like this slight of rain. And it would be like, right, down off the tower. And I was like, why? Yeah, you don't climb when it's raining. It's too dangerous. I was like, you don't climb when it's raining and you're sending me to fucking Scotland. I was like, we will never be working in Scotland. It rains every <laughs> um, but then I found out that was just bullshit. You know, like when you get there, it was one of those things. Balfour Beatty was, was massive on health and safety. So if you're up on a rig and like you literally move your safety goes to like rub your eye, the health and safety guy would be like, Oi, get your fucking goggles back on. You're like, yeah, sorry, mate. I'll just fucking scratch my eye. Calm down. Fucking give us a break. Um, but then it was odd. The days that there was literally, I'm not even exaggerating, 40 mile an hour was, was like, the snow was blasting you 40 miles an hour side on and the, you were fucking swinging on the lines. You couldn't even hear the guy speak in front of you. 
uh, and it was just torrential storms. Like the health and safety guy always seemed to be in a meeting in London that day and wasn't anywhere around, you know. So it was pretty. <laughs> the for break were pretty bullshit that way. So was that one of the reasons you left that job because of this kind of stringent rule set and code of conduct that you had to follow? Much like why you left the army was pink and fluffy. Is that why you left? Bullshit. The... Yeah, did... is that why you left that job? I just hated the job, mate. I mean, look, it was. I, I really loved that for the job. You know, I, I, I really respect of that, and and he knows I love him a bit. <clears throat> I just hated the job, man. I'd done it for about eighteen months, and I was just like, this isn't fucking me. They were all guys that like to work and type of guys that love to be mechanics and you know tinker about with um engines at the weekend and all that kind of shit i hated all that shit you know um so just like this isn't for me and uh, so I, I was do you know what i was going to stick it out <clears throat> because even as a trainee right not even knowing how to tie a rope properly you were making 51 grand a year but you were doing 17 days on three days off and your three days off wasn't really three days off because your first day home you're absolutely fucking burst you've had to drive for hours and hours from wherever you were well dad's would drive i would just always get my head down but um you would then get home put all your gear in the wash put all so you're first and then you probably have a baby so then you're saturday you woke up rough sunday you just packed all your gear and the monday morning meet you were driving back in so you never really got any days off you know um and it was just you just get burst with it all you just get really really burst with it and I remember waking up one day, it was half four in the morning, I looked out the window and the snow was bailing down and coming all day. We were, we were working just past Perth. So we used to come home at night time and just take the hit and leave it at five in the morning to get there for seven. Um, and I remember just thinking, oh, this can't be my fucking man. I was like, I was just not born to wake up, raft, you know, until like my bones literally hurt. And um cave and die. I was like, this just isn't my life. I was not meant to live this life. I just knew I was meant for something different. Um, and I was like, I need to get out. So I, I was still going to stay at that point. What happened was I went all day to Greece. And I came back. Balfour Beatty were having cutbacks. And what I didn't know, they were actually cutting all the scumbags who used to get wasted. And like, we used to call it dipping a shift. They never used to turn up on a Monday or Tuesday because they were already smashed for the weekend. They would just rock up on a Wednesday as if nothing happened. And Balfour Beatty were in a position where they just couldn't sack people for that. You know, so they had to make it out as they were, they were cutting back on everyone. So they were like, yeah, you're at risk, you're at risk. And I was at the at risk because I was one of the newest members. I was still a trainee. But I was there for a year, never dipped a shift. One time I actually roasted my hand. I mean, it, it was blistered out to here. I burnt it with cooking oil, cooking my meal prep for going back there. And, uh, and I called in. I was like, boss, at the hospital, it's fucking 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm not dipping my shift, but I, I'm going to be sitting here for fucking hours before they even see me. But I promise you, you know, once I get seen at the hospital, I will be straight up my shift. So straight after the hospital, 7 in the morning, next coffee had a bandage in my hand my, my hand was just fucked with burns um, and i drove up to perth uh, back up to the funds and i did work so like, I, I never ever dipped a shift i just grafted and got through it and they really appreciated that but because they'd already said we're going to have cutbacks and we're going to thin you all out what happened was i put a post on facebook and i was like right do you know what if i'm going to lose this job i'm just going to go back to the conclusion so when i was working in afghan um one of my mates baz aspinall was like, look, it's going on there. One of my mates, Martin Grant, is really dying. He was an ex-Cold Stream guard, something like Gradier guards, one of the two. And he's dying to get into close protection. He's done like 14 years army, tons of tours, but he just can't get a fucking job. And that's what it was like for a lot of people if you don't really know anyone. So I said, mate, send me a CV. I'll try and get him a gig. So he sent me a CV and I did get him a gig. <clears throat> and I didn't even know the guy. 
And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, I put, we, we followed each other on Facebook, but we never actually spoke after that. And then, so fast forward a couple of years to, you know, my time at the pylons, I put a post on Facebook saying, lads, um, is, is there anybody got work going over in Iraq or Afghan? I'm looking at back and see I'm just about to lose my job in Malfour Beatty. And he private mailed me within two to three minutes. And he was like, Mac, I know we don't speak much, mate, but I will never forget you fucking squared me away when you didn't even know me. Now it's my turn to return the favour. I'm actually a manager for one of the close protection companies in Iraq. He's like, I can have you over here in a fucking week, mate. You send me your passport. You send me this, that, the other, your SIA licence. I will have you in a flight fucking next week and they'll have you working with me. And I was like, no danger. He's like, mate, I've never forgot you squared me away. Um, and I'm happy to return the favour. And he did, mate. I literally was like, but you're right, I'm off. You've given no choice. And then at that point, they told me, oh, you're not one of the ones that's going. I was like, well, mate, you're a bit late. Like, my mate. Martin's just broke his back to get me a fucking flight everything booked for next week. You guys told me I was getting sacked, you know? So it was a little bit bittersweet where um, I wasn't going to get sacked in the end, but I didn't know that, and they couldn't tell me that. <coughs> me. So, yeah, a week later, mate, I was back in Iraq uh, in the sand pit. So who were you looking after as a bodyguard when you were in Iraq? Was it someone important? It's just oil workers. Just oil workers. I mean, I don't mean just oil workers. Of course, everyone's important. But they were just oil workers, pit, uh, pipe, pipe fitters and all this. But, I mean, the job, in my opinion, was fucking brain dead again. You think it's Ali. We have a saying in the army, it's Ali. It just means you look you look cool as fuck, like a Navy SEAL or bodyguard. It sounds like everything's fucking Ali. And it was dog shit. You were just a taxi driver with a gun. You literally got up at five in the morning, went and picked this guy up at the compound, drove three hours through the desert, dropped him off at the BP um, oil refinery. He went inside for about 10 to 12 hours. You sat outside in your car and fucking in 55 degree heat. You sat there for 10, 12 hours doing fuck all, um, just talking to guys in the other vehicles, and then you would drive back. And you'd done that for weeks, and it was just fucking groundhog day. Um, and I, I'd done that for about a year, and that's how I knew it was for me. I was like, yeah, this ain't for me. So instead of wasting my time, um, I just put it into learning. I was learning French and all this kind of shit at the time. Um, and I was learning about the financial markets. <clears throat> well, that was the second time I was dipping into the financial markets uh, like to learn how to, how to trade. I was trying to learn how to trade. But at that point, I mean, I never actually managed it at that point. Why would those pipe fitters and oil executives and oil workers need bodyguards? Because if they're out there, uh, well, they need bodyguards to transport. I mean, there's still always a threat of ISIS and all that. I mean, to be honest, when we were there, nothing ever happened. I even walked through Baghdad one day when I had to go to the hospital. Yet, when you get in Iraq, you, when you first land, you have to go and get what's called a blood stamp every time you land in the country. And you usually have to go to a local hospital and get an HIV test. And then they stamp your passport to say that you don't have HIV yet. I'm sure it's called a blood stamp. So you have to go and get that. And it was literally, we can't body hammering guns and shit into a hospital. So I was literally walking through the town of Baghdad with my, you know, my shirt and trousers. And it was fine. Nobody bothered me. It was, you know, wasn't hostile at all. So um, it, there's just always that risk that something could kick off. As we've seen, I think it was two or three years ago, whenever it was fine. And then all of a sudden, um, the US embassy over there got bombarded by mortars and small arms fire. And it just happened randomly. So <clears throat> you just never know if something's going to happen, you know. So, given that you had a little taste for the financial markets through the self-studying that you were doing whilst being a bodyguard, did you already have that as the North Star that you were going to go run towards after bodyguarding, or did you just think, I've had enough of bodyguard, I'm going to quit and just see what happens next? Yeah, so, Kenan, jumped back to the army for that as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, 
um, what happened was the whole financial markets thing. When we go back to when I was in the army and I'd signed off and still wasn't sure if I was 100% getting the close protection job, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I was in my room one night and one of the lads called Jamie Lamont heard I'd signed off. And honestly, mate, I, I was so fucking army. Nobody in the regiment could believe that I had fucking signed off and they hadn't. They were like, how the fuck is this guy leaving and we're not, you know, because I loved it. So Jamie came round and told me, like, no way, man, have you signed off? I thought people were talking shit. He's not that. And he says, what are you going to do? I don't know, blah, blah, blah. And he he said to me, have you ever thought about Forex? And I went, Jamie, you know what, mate? I have looked at Forex a hundred times. And every time I watch videos about it on YouTube, it just fries my brain. I, I'm just, I mean, I left school at 15, mate. I'm just never going to get this. I've tried to learn it so many times, and my brain is fried when I watch the videos. And he went, no, look. He says, I've got. Uh, this course but I went, I've got copied these two American guys are like really top traders around the world they've got a course it's four videos each video is four and a half hours long and the course is five grand but I've copy of it I'll send you if you want I was like mate send it so he passed it across to me and I literally watched about 20-30 minutes but it was fried and I was just like I'm never gonna fucking get this fuck that and I bend it off <coughs> the guys done the video very well they would only speak for about 10, 15 minutes, one of them, and then the next one would just cut in. He would start speaking, so it didn't feel like death by PowerPoint. You know, the way they'd done it was <laughs> just couldn't get it. I just couldn't understand it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So then, fast forward again uh, to the Iraq time. Right, let's try this Forex again, because I wanted, I wanted to do a job where I could make as much money as possible in the sense of I didn't want to come home and be in a job, you know, like let's say a back in Scottish Power or someone's like, right, we're going to pay you 27 grand a year, regardless of how hard you work or how shit of a worker you are, just that a year. I wanted a job where if I put in the graft and the time, I can make as much money as possible. So that's obviously things like Forex, and uh, sales. So I was actually applying for tons and tons of sales jobs. I thought, if you can sell well, you can make a lot of money as a good salesman, you know. So I was doing all this, and what happened was, pardon me, guys, I'm sorry. Um, I was looking at paper tons, Arnold Clark, Kitchens, Windows, you name it, lads, I bloody applied for it. And uh, I saw this one job, and it said business development manager, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, blah, blah, blah. And it said minimum requirements, two years sales experience. Um, it's telesales, full training is provided, although experience is preferred, blah, blah, blah. Um, we'll provide your accommodation, we pay your flights out and home again. If you, you know, if it doesn't work out for you, we'll cover your flights home, your visas, your medical. I was like, what? So I just literally did like three years of my CV from post protection and, and the pylons. <clears throat> and uh, I put in sales. My mate was a salesman, so I put in sales. I was like, mate, what do you sell? And he's like, this, right? how many leads do you get a week? How many do you close? What's your commission percentage? Do you weekly? And I literally put his life on my CV. Um, and it was like weeks late. So I applied for it when I was still with my ex-girlfriend at the time. And, uh, but we hated each other at that point. We were just really staying together because of the kids. But you just can't stay with someone for that. So we, we just fucking hated being in each other's presence. So I remember, look, I, she was sitting in that couch over there. And I was sitting there just looked up. She was watching. I just thought, if I get to, I'm getting to fuck out of here. So I was like applying for it. And I never expected to get the job. I never expected it. It's applied, but never heard anything back. Um, and about six weeks after I had actually applied for it, we had obviously broke up. I was then on my arse because I had no money coming in. I was paying all these bills. I was paying her car, my car. I was paying the house. I was paying the cards. I wasn't crazy the cards, but you still have to pay the little bills and stuff. 
pain in the gas and the electricity. And I was on my arse, guys. I swear that was the worst time of my life. Literally, like a pound seventy-five in the bank. The next week, I had about three and a half grand to come out. You know, I had everybody in the dog calling me, like, where the fuck's the money? You know, like all, all the credit cards, bank, car companies, you name it. I was sleep. I was bound. I mean, I was essentially homeless because I was out of the house that I was fucking paying for. And I wasn't sleeping on the streets homeless, but, well, you know, I would go to my sister Allison's for three, four, and then you kind of feel that you're outstaying, you're welcome, even though she loves me, but like, I, you can tell you're getting under people's feet, right? Then I would stay at my sister Dawn's, and then, uh, you know, I was really grateful that they all took me out. <clears throat> and Dawn was like, just come and stay with me. Um, and that was fine. So I did stay with Dawn for a while. And, um, it was, the, it was the shittest part of my life, mate. I had literally hit rock bottom. It was fucking brutal, I'm a lie. So I was in I was in my sister Dawn's couch one morning, <clears throat> and I remember this, mate, it was unbelievable. I'm sitting on the couch. I had my I was in my pajamas. You know, I felt like I hadn't shaved. I was just really down and dumped, feeling sorry for myself. I had my feet on top of old ball, which had every worldly possession in it. And I remember I put my, my head in my hands, and I just went, what the fuck are you going to do now, Rido? And, mate, the instant I said that, I, no word of a lie, my phone started going, and I was like, what the fuck? And I looked, and it was this crazy phone number, and it said Hong Kong. I was like, what the fuck's calling me to Hong Kong? And it was six weeks after I applied, mate, I had completely forgot, and I wasn't going to answer it. I thought, at that time, I don't know if you remember, there was a scam thing going around where people would call you from, like, a Mexico number, and you'd pick it up, and it would start charging, like, £30 a minute, right? Um, there was that scam was going around so I thought fuck that's going to be that scam but it's just not Mexico it's it's Hong Kong and I went do you know what I don't even have 30 fucking pound a minute to spend I don't even have the money in my bank so I'm just going to answer it they, they won't get any fucking money out of me you know so I answered the call and it, it was just this guy like hello is that Ryan I was like yes yeah. oh this is Ian remember you applied for a job in Southeast Asia blah 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 and of course I did you know it's the only one job I applied for He's like, you still interested? And I was like, fucking right. So I went through the telephone. <laughs> I went through the telephone interview. Then I went through a Skype interview. Then they sent you this email. Um, it was like a sales. What's the word? You had to do a test. I can't remember what kind of, a psychometric test of sales to see if you had the right mindset of what looking for your extrovert, introvert, all this kind of shit. Um, I done that and I went and met someone and then yeah. It, it, Long story short, I got the job and I literally blacked the whole thing as if I'd been a salesman for like three years, just based on it, just memorizing my mate's job. Um, <laughs> so <clears throat> I then got the job and it, it, they could have sent me anywhere in Asia. This company was huge. They've got offices all over the world, Denmark, Malta, you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, everywhere. So they sent me to the Indonesian office. And it's the crazy part. Excuse me. So this is wild, and honestly, if you're listening and watching this right now, you will believe the story, and I can 100% verify this is true. I swear in my son's life, this is a true story. So, I get to the office, and right, nobody speaks English. There's like, literally nobody speaks English. It's not like Malaysia or Philippines, but everyone can speak English. It's very different here. Nobody can speak it. So, I rocked up. I'm in the training. There was obviously an English um, sales teacher teaching us all the stuff. He was England and... And then the next minute, um, the boss walked in, uh, the chief trader walked in, sorry, CEO, and he was an American guy. He's like, oh, white friend, you know, a bully friend. So we became mates, and he was like, where are you from, man? I said, oh, I'm from Scotland. I told him about my military background, and you know what Americans are like? They're always mad about big services. Thank you for your service. No, that shit. Um, so he then, that's the, the crazy part, guys. So he then said to me, 
have you ever done trading before? And at this point, I wasn't learning. It was with a trading company. This job, sorry, I think I mentioned that. This job was with a trading company, but it was to be, it was to do the business development management to bring them more clients from Europe to invest in their platform and their traders, right? <clears throat> so that's what the job was. It was doing sales essentially. Um, and he was like, "Have you ever done uh, sales? Uh, sorry, have you ever done forex trade before?" And I says, "Do you know what, boss? I've looked into it a million times, um, but I, I just can't understand it. It just fried my brain." And I said, "I watched. I got. I went. I got a copy of this course with these two American guys, Steve Morrow and Zen." And he went. He interrupted me. And went, Zen Aldridge, and I was like, "Yes. How the fuck did you know that? Do you know him?" And he's like, "I'm Zen Aldridge." And I was like, <laughs> "No." And the guy, guys, I swear in my son's life, this is true, I'll show you a photograph right now. The guy from the course that Jamie Lamont sent me in the army six years previous, I was watching this course in the army, six years later, he was now the chief trader in the company that I was working for. I shit you not. And I was just like, get to fuck. How does this happen? Then really close mates. We used to go for lunch all the time. Look, that's me and then right there. So, hey, where's my camera? That's me and then. That's us. Uh, and he became a chief trader. And about a year and a half after I was doing the whole sales job, he he just chat my office one day and he's like, Hey man, you want to learn how to trade? And I was like, Fucking right. I used to see these guys in the office, they'd come in two hours and fuck off and they would be clearing like two hundred grand a month. I was like, What? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so uh, when he was like, Do you want how to trade? I was like, Fucking right, I do mate. So he's like, right, from Monday morning, this is no longer your office. You come and sit beside me. He taught me how to trade, and that's how I got into it. Holy shit. I can't imagine how motivated you must have been to learn trading when some distant person that never knew you existed six years ago is now your yep. mentor and coach. You must have been so yep. inspired and motivated to, to learn. Me, it was unbelievable. It was because actually, do you know what? I'm the type of person if I if I watch that kind of course online, I need to be beside someone to actually so that I can say, hey, what does that line mean? Oh, that's the 50 EMA, right? What does that do? What's its purpose? I have to be there for someone to physically show. You know, if you tell me, I'll forget. If you show me, I'll remember. Let me do it, and I will understand. You know, um, and that's really how I learn. So being able to sit beside him and watch everything play out it was just phenomenal. So once you got your hands on the platform and you started trading and you mm -hmm. learned the ropes, what type of life did trading in Indonesia afford you? Mate, a brilliant life. I'm pretty much set. So what happened was after about three years of trading at the company, I was pretty much set. Like I mean, I could have just stopped working from there on. And COVID, then, um, after about three months, we were obviously working from home at that point. After about three months, the company were like, mate, we're closing the office in Jakarta. You can still work for us, but like you have to move to another country, maybe China or whatever. And I was like, lads, I'm not being fun. I'm already now. I've already learned the bloody Indonesian language. You know, I've bought an apartment here. I've got cars here. I've got pets here. <clears throat> I was like, I, I ain't moving, sorry. And they were like, yeah, well, you, you can't work with us anymore. And I said, yeah, that's fine. We lived on really good terms. I mean, we're still my mates right now. Even the owner, we're still talking uh, uh, you know, on a monthly basis. We're still good mates. Um, but I was just at home trading my own money because I thought, yeah, it's fine. I already had enough to, you know, set up for life. Um, and I was just trading my own money from home. And that literally lasted about a week. And then an Amer American guy called um, and he was like, right, I heard don't work for Middle East anymore. And I was like, oh, and he's like, do you want to fucking trade my PAM accounts? It means like my client's accounts. And I was like, yeah, sure, mate. I went back. Look, he was based, he's based in London. It's a London uh, company. 
And uh, I like, but I ain't moving, mate. And he's like, you don't have to move. Okay. I mean, he said, I don't give a shit if you're in Bali or your car. I don't care where you are. If you have an internet signal and a laptop, log in to the PAM account and the master account and just trade for my clients. And I was like, sweet. So now I've been trading for him for like the, the last three years as well on top of that. That's insane. Like you've set yourself up for life living in one of the most beautiful countries in the world and a lovely apartment with some amazing pets and a beautiful wife. Most people would yep. be happy at just living life just like that. But then you started mm -hmm. forcing yourself into the most uncomfortable environments with your um, outdoorsmanship. You started to embark on some of the craziest natural physical endeavors. Hi. Talk about that, yep. mate. What did you end up getting up to? Yeah, so what happened was that my life was great. You know, I had nothing else to, I had no worries about bills and this kind of stuff. And I've never, baby, I've never been a really, uh, you know, monetary person. I've never been someone who's into Lambos and Rolexes and all this shit. I did know that, and I do believe that money's important because now that I, I do have a bit of dough. I don't have fucking worries. I don't worry about hospital bills. I don't worry about, oh, fucking, oh my gosh, now Tracy's up this month, you know? And it does bring a nice, a nice uh, level of peace to your life. Uh, but I've just never been someone who wants to get lambled up and all, all this kind of, you know, fancy shit. Um, but what was I going to say there? Um, sorry, say that question again. Sorry, I fucking digressed. What were you going to say? So you've got this lifestyle whereby you're secure, you don't have to worry, yep. but you've then forced yourself into some of the most yes. physically demanding endeavours. That's what it was. Sorry. Why is so, that? Sorry, I was digressing there. Yeah. So I went through this phase, right, of having a, a nice, comfortable life that I really enjoyed. I, I love trading. Um, then I kept waking up. I, I went through this phase. I'm sure many ex-army people went through it, but I kept waking up in the morning, and I was dying to go back and rejoin the army and do, like, my last 12, 13 years, whatever it was. And and I, I don't know what it was, guys. I couldn't shake it. Every morning I woke up, I dying to go back and rejoin. And I would speak to my mates for the army, who some of them were still in, like, mate, don't do it. Like, this is fucking horrific. We're only here because we're already on our 17th year. You're going to come back at fucking 35 as, you know, as a land shack or full school or whatever. And, um, you know, a 35-year-old land shack, that would be dog shit. You know, it's, and it's not the army that, you, that you're thinking about in your mind. Um, and I was like, yeah, it's true. So I knew I was never going to go back, but I still kept up every day trying to go back and join the army. So <clears throat> I said to my wife, I said, you know what? See, every kind of two weeks, every second weekend, I'm going to go out the jungle. It was only an hour's drive from where we live. So I was like, I'm going to go out to the jungle, mountains, volcanoes, and just going to go exploring the islands and stuff every second week just to get this adventure stuff out of my system. Obviously, she's not into camping and shit, so she's not going to come. And I went, I just want to get all this outdoor adventure, living rough stuff out of my system. So I'd done it. And uh, I was I would go out and I would make like shelters in the jungle, like bushcraft. Sometimes I would use a hammock and all this. I would just pitch up a, a hammock beside a waterfall you know and sleep there at night which is fucking phenomenal mate and i started showing my mates on my phone the videos that i took when i was out camping in the jungle uh, my british mates here and they were like matt you should put that on youtube he's like this is the kind of shit i stay up watching at like two or three o'clock in the morning you know watching random guys building swimming pools in the jungle and shit um so i put it on youtube mate and at the end of week one i had 71 subscribers and at the end of week three i had 150 th and my channel just exploded, and I, it was just absolutely nuts, you know? Why do you think that virality occurred? Do you think it's just because it was a rare look into a life that not many people live? It just became such high entertainment for people? No, do you know what it was? It, uh, what I'm doing is very segmented in terms of, that there are tons of people here doing survival, doing mountain stuff, doing adventures. There's even really good Indonesian ones doing it. <clears throat> 
excuse me, um, the difference with me, right, seeing Indonesia, nobody speaks English. You know, you get the odd one, but out of all, there's probably about 5% of the country who can actually speak English. Malaysia, everybody can speak English, you know. Um, and they really love foreigners here. So they, they, this country, they're, they're the kindest, friendliest, most welcoming people I have ever met in my life. And they call, if you're black foreigner, let's say you're from the Caribbean or you're from um, Mauritius or whatever, right, and you come here, then you're a foreigner. But if you're a white, a, a white foreigner, you get called Bule. Uh, bo- that's where my name comes from, Bule Bolang. So Bule Bolang. Um, if you're a white foreigner, then they call you Bule. So I then start to speak the language, and they absolutely love seeing you know foreigners trying to learn the language. They love it. So I also have a rescued pet called a Luwak. <clears throat> have you ever heard of the most expensive cough in the world where this animal eats the coffee chews? It shits, it shits it the out. coffee. Yeah. So I've got one of them as a rescue in the back. And uh, and over here, it's a kind of poor man's pet, right? People, it's just, it's a major pet. Like, no, no, most people in the city don't have it. Like, my wife and our family would never have that type of pet stuff. Um, so all of a sudden, you've got ex-British Army guy. who I was using my old Army Bergen, which is massive. It's like 140 litre Bergen. I was using that when I was in the jungle. You've got this, this, this you know, white bully guy, as they call it, walking around the jungle, camping out. Um, with his big gear, with his big gear, and um, I had my my luwak on top of my bag, so I used to take her in the jungle with me, and she would she just tag along in the jungle. I used to let her run around and blah blah blah. Uh, so, what do you call it? They were just like, holy shit! There's this white dude running around the jungle, building you know bamboo shelters, swimming in the river with his pet, and and they just couldn't believe it. And I think that's why it really went viral. One of my videos, I went, I collabs with this really famous guy called Panji Batolang, and really did go viral. He had like two million subscribers at the time, <clears throat> and we actually he made a video with me, right? And this is what propelled it really. Um, he had two million subscribers at the time, and what happened? I, we made a video just sitting down doing a survival thing, showing them inside my survival tin. And inside my survival tin, I had a condom, and that's for carrying water, right? <coughs> Excuse me. It was so on my video, my thumbnail was British Army soldier survives in the jungle using a condom. So, but I, I, I typed that out in, in the Indonesian language. So, obviously, Indonesians were like, What the fuck? How do you survive using a condom? So, that was a kind of clickbait thumbnail. And surprisingly, even though it was definitely Panji doing the collaboration, made my channel explode. If you watch his video of that version, he got like 900,000 views on that. And I've got like 6.5 million views. It's just mental how it turns. So, that's what really made the channel explode. Just so I can take like six steps back, how on earth do you survive in the jungle with a condom? What the heck? Right, so it's just for worse. what you do is you take the condom out, you, you take you put it inside one of your socks, one of your woolen socks, fill it up with water, and then you tie the around so that you can then open it again later to drink and you can carry it around. And, and obviously being inside the sock, you can then hold it without it like slipping through your hands and all that. That is nuts. That is nuts, That's mate. That's <laughs> So is your audience primarily Indonesian in that case? Yes, mate. Like 98% are Indonesian. So at what point did, did you continue or have the appetite to continue to um, make that a kind of full, almost side hustle? Almost. Was it the, yeah. the fact that you got 6 million views on that video? Or did you think, oh, maybe I'm onto something? 
Well, what happened was, mate, I, I ended up getting sponsored. Uh, I got sponsored by the face in Kawasaki. So, the, like, Kawasaki, you know, like, where's the correlation to that? So, the first videos were kind of survival, but then I, I, I changed away from that because when I realized, you know what, there's actually something in here. This channel's going to go somewhere. I thought, if you look at survival, right, if you have an umbrella here and the main one is survival, there's nothing underneath that. You know, you're not going to get who's going to sponsor you, but somebody's going to sponsor you a camping knife. You know, nobody's going to give you give you endorse you or sponsor you there's nothing and then you have to think of content for every single video what's the storyline what am i going to do there's only so many shelters you can build only so many times you can make a fire with your hands and shit you know and it's going to get boring even for me never mind the viewers so i then simply changed it <coughs> to an adventure channel so underneath the umbrella of adventure i can go jet in a thousand islands i can go scuba diving i can go paragliding i can go skydiving i can do i can do survival uh, I can do the mountains and volcanoes. I can. There's just so many avenues you can go down underneath the umbrella of um, adventure. So I changed it to adventure, <clears throat> and that's where the name Bully Borlang comes from. So Bully is obviously me because I'm a white foreigner, uh, and Borlang is an Indonesian word, which is two words which have been chopped and then combined. It means bocha patualang. Bocha means kid, and patualang means adventure so blue bolang essentially means the white adventure kid that's what it means and it, that that's not funny to us but when you say bully bolang to indonesians they burst out laughing because they find it funny you know so that's why it's quite catchy for indonesians and it's not really for us can you tell me about your indonesian paragliding training experience uh, that was wild so i said to the guy i mean at that point my indonesian was tarzan indonesian you know i could order a bottle of juice, I could order fried rice, you know, nasi goreng. <coughs> that that was about it. Um, I couldn't really speak. So I said to the guy, look, I'll come and do it. I'm trying to learn paragliding, but listen, you're going to have to give me a guy who can speak English because I'm never going to learn it in Bahasa. He's like, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem, my friend. So I paid the guy, and he's like, yeah, I'll get you one of the Indonesian uh, champion, the Indonesian national team champions. I was like, oh, fucking sweet, which he was, he didn't lie. But I got there, and the guy couldn't even say hello. I mean, when he was saying left and right, he was going, F, F, I, 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 F. I was like, what the fuck is this guy saying? And he was trying to say left and right, and he couldn't even say it. So that was a disaster. I was like, how am I going to learn this? So what I ended up doing was I literally got him to pitch it as it was on the ground, and I opened up YouTube, and I watched, like, um, paragliding tutorials on YouTube as he was pointing to stuff. So I had to kind of correlate between the video with the guy speaking English and what he was trying to teach me um, on that. The only race where it came to actually fly and landing is that I have done skydiving before. I haven't got my full license, but I've done like I've done like seven or eight jumps myself. It's called a wraps course, um, static line. So I had done them. So I knew kind of how to flare, how to land, how to turn. I kind of had those principles. Although paragliding is a bit different because you don't just come down. You can also go back up and, and float around. And uh, but I still had the basics of landing and taking off. That's hilarious. What a... Of of all, I remember we were speaking earlier about how you're a very hands-on learner. You like being showed um, instead of being told. Um, yeah, and you like watching like videos online to teach nice. yourself different uh, lessons. But I think paragliding of all things is something you don't want to learn on your own. You don't want to be self-taught. Um, but the fact no, that you I just know. basically self-taught yourself with a coach over your shoulder and then just jumped off a hill somewhere or jumped off a landing somewhere, um, yep. that's insane, mate. That's that is nuts. I it was not been... the thing was it? on on the first day normally by day four day four or day five uh you then get to jump 
And on day one, I had already done my first jump. So what they do is you do this, hey, you do this little kind of ramp take off, <clears throat> and then you uh, they'll, they'll take you up the top, and you're trying to tandem one. I just said it a bit later. <laughs> Drive me nuts, sorry. Um, so, you, what do you call it? Yeah, so you then go up to the top and go in a tandem. and But you're at the front and the, the guy, sorry, you're at the back and the instructor's at the front and you he just gonna, you do it. It's just with obviously in case anything goes wrong. And then after literally one tandem flight, the guy was like, yeah, you're good to go, man. And then I went up and it is nerve-wracking, mate. I mean, if you can imagine turbulence in a plane, <clears throat> you... Um, you get that turbulence because you're obviously paragliding within the mountains and the turbulence from the, the mix of the wind and the hot thermals coming up, you, uh, you're just sitting there, mate, rattling, and you're like bouncing. Now, if you have a hot air pocket, you can fly up 100 metres. And equally, if you come out of the hot air pocket and you hit a cold air pocket, you can fucking, you can drop 100 metres, you know, so it is quite nerve-wracking. It is, it's pretty wild, mate. That's an insane story, mate. It was nuts. I, I've been watching a lot of your content and consuming a lot of the endeavours that you've embarked on. Um, some of them have hundreds of thousands of views. Some are absolutely n radical in nature. If I were to ask you what is the most extreme endeavour that you've done, what would come to mind? Is it Mount Rinjani? Ah... Uh... It's a close one, mate, between Mount Rinjani and one called Mount Salak. They call it Gunung Salak. So Gunung just means Mount Gunung Salak. That's probably the most extreme. It's not the highest. Mount Rinjani is a million. It's, it's the biggest one I've done. It's like 3,800 meters. Like, if you think about it this way, if you get, when you get to 1,800 meters, which is the same height as, um, as Ben Nevis, only at base camp in the mountains over here. That one mountain, Gunung Rinjani, is is about two thirds the size of the entire Cairn Gorms National Park. So that's just and that's just one mountain. <laughs> Give you a sense of scale. It's unbelievable. Um and it yeah, it was horrific. It was pretty emotional. Um so that's Tell the listeners about that trail. What's that? Tell the listeners about that trick. Yeah. So it's got this one mountain has got everything. It's got savannah. So you're up this steep inclined savannah and the whole track is like black ash because when the volcano erupts, it just leaves all the black ash. You're just slipping down, like walking up a sand, a sand dune, you know. Um, then when you get to uh, the kind of the camping area, which is one of the kind of summits, look down, they've got a massive lake and through the center of the lake, they've actually got the little kind of spout of the volcano where it erupts from. So you've got this crater. Where they, so what they said is before in the past, it used to be a big, you know, massive volcano. The sides around the volcano collapsed. The cone is now poking through, and around it be uh, became a lake, which is full of fish and stuff. The volcano still erupts, still plumed out from the center. <clears throat> so you've got that. Down the backside, we've got hot springs that you can jump in, and the, wa the water is roasting hot. And then when you come back down the Torian route, you it's all jungle. It's just absolutely out of this world. So you've got all aspects. What made that so emotional for you, that, that trick? It was, we didn't have any time to rest, so you get option for two days and three nights, and we were like, yeah, let's just do two days and three nights, and we should have taken three days, four nights, 
um, you walk for like 11 hours just to get to the camping area. You have you get there at about 8 o'clock at night. <clears throat> you will have some food. They prepare and make. Uh, I mean, these porters are next level. You've never seen guys carry gear like this. So they carry this. They've got this bamboo pole, right? At the end of each bamboo pole, they've got a woven basket on each end. And it's like 50 kilograms of gear. I'm not even exaggerating. I tried to pick it up. And the the bamboo instantly digs into your collarbone. Like, it's excruciating pain. If you imagine picking up a squat bar with kilograms and resting it on one shoulder, one hand, and trying to carry that up a 3,800-meter mountain, it's exactly what it's like. <coughs> and uh, these guys are phenomenal. And they, they wear flip-flops, mate. They wear flip-flops. And they're up and down the mountain before you. They're just off. Like, if they'll stop. They'll go ahead of you. Stop, get the cooker out, prepare your meal. You get there, you have your meal, and as you're eating, just cut off, and they're just they're just gone. <coughs> um, so that was phenomenal. Um, and what made it hard is that you get there, you have your food, you maybe to sleep for an hour, an hour and a half, then you wake back up. You have to start your summer ascent at like a one a.m., two a.m. in the morning, and it's just gale force winds when you get up there, just ripping through the side of your face. The, the temperature is absolutely freezing. I know you think it's hot because but up at that height, it's just it's blistering cold. To the point you can't feel your toes, can't feel your fingers. <coughs> and uh, you're just literally, you're, every step you take, it's just black volcanic ash, like a sand dune. So every step you take, you're sliding down every single step. So it's not only the physical side that's extremely difficult, it's the mental side. Like it's, it's fucking emotional. It's it's a uh, really demotivating every time you take one step forward, you're taking three slips back. You know, it's it really is a nightmare. And that's not coming from like your average uh, Glaswegian teenage guy. That's coming from a guy that had been tours of uh, Afghanistan, who has this Aye. mental fortitude of a, a British forward observer who has done yep. however many expeditions before. This is not like. Just a general population Aye. member no. uh, saying this. This is someone who is quite clearly a nutcase, given the fact that you kept on talking about how much you love being in the army. This is like like, <laughs> the top, the, like a really hardcore guy saying this. I can't imagine what it'd be like if it was, for example, me trying to do that. I would probably have passed out three hours into it. Oh, it, was, it was emotional, mate. And then the thing is, when you come back down to summit, it takes you another six hours to get back down. Um, and then what you'll do is you'll have your food at the same camping area, but then they'll pack away all the and then you walk for another four hours, so you get an hour's rest after that. So six hours up, six hours back down, an hour rest, another four hours back down to the next camping site. So you go down and you camp by the lake on the second night, and then obviously we got all our gear off, we ran our flip-flops to like the hot springs, we dived in the hot springs, the whole volcanic springs, that was amazing. Had, had dinner that night, got to our bed, say, about eight o'clock that night, and then we were walking back up at 5 a.m. to have breakfast, and then we started the trek, which was supposed to be a 12-hour trek from the lake back down a different route. You come up a route called Cimbalon, and you come down the route called uh, Torian. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, coming back down that route, the guy said, look, it's going to be about 12 hours, and um, we actually smashed out in six hours, eight minutes. So, yeah, we, we done some really good time. But my mate caught, uh, came with us. on. He was in the same trip, but he, he was actually a mountain guide. Uh, he was taking like old people and he's like mate it took us 14 and a half hours to cover that because the people were like really struggling and blowing up just like you know, what a disaster what a nightmare but we were six hours which is great that's insane mate i also saw a recent video of yours where you go to a place <laughs> called skull island that wasn't for yes. the faint-hearted what's that all about 
So yeah, Skull Island. It's it's formally known as uh, Dessa Trunian. Dessa means village, and Trunian is always the name. So it's Trunian Village in English, and, and, and informally it's called Skull Island. So it's a part up up in the north of Bali called Kandamani, <clears throat> and this little village nestles right back of this mountain, at uh, the base of this mountain at the, at the bottom of the lake as well. Um, they have this tradition where they bury their dead topsoil. So they have clothes and stuff on them, the traditional Balinese dress, but they'll bury them topsoil. Uh, they literally lay on top of the ground and they put this kind of bamboo, uh, I don't want to say prison, this bamboo kind of fence covering them. <clears throat> but I mean, you can look and you can literally see the bodies decomposing. And then after, you know, however many months or years, whatever, when the body is fully decomposed in its bones, they place the bones down at the back end and pardon me, they will place the skull on this wall so it's like all lined up. And if you drop something in there, it seemed to be cursed. So if you drop money, you can't pick it up. If you drop your mobile phone, you can't pick it up. It's like, oh, I can't pick it up and take it out of you. So that's a bit of a nightmare, like trying to make sure you do not drop your wallet in because you can't take it out of you because they see it as being cursed. And that was that was really insightful. It was amazing. And, and there was not one bit of smell, by the way. There's a massive tree there called uh, the Banyan tree, sorry, and they claim that that tree takes the smell away. It's like some kind of you know spiritual thing that they believe in. And they say that that tree is the, uh, the smell away, and you cannot smell anything when you're there. It's absolutely amazing. That's mental, mate. Most guys that I know have hobbies of like going to the gym, reading books, listening to podcasts, or doing a podcast. You literally yeah. go to an uh, open grave as a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I do love to get involved in the, the culture here. Like the, the culture here is phenomenal. I mean, they've got seventeen thousand islands. They've got seven hundred languages and dialects. Um, their food, the choices of food here, mate, are unbelievable. I hate when I came back to Scotland when I was eating the food. I just felt like I was eating cardboard, mate, compared to the spices that I'm now used to over here. And the options, you know, it just the food that we get back home just felt so plain. I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved having a real good fish and chips. I loved like chicken corn my pizza. A real good British kebab, all that stuff. But I mean, I'm just so used to getting a million different spices over here. It's just phenomenal. I know you don't always get that type of food when you're on expeditions. I've seen a video of you yeah. catching a fish with your bare hands. That is aye, nuts. Aye, that's right. Aye. So that was with my little mate, Daddy and Owen. So when you go into the rivers here, you can't see anything, but there's little, they call Lubang, Lubang Hole. Little holes in the rocks, and there's little fish that go in there to get away from predators. Oh, little fish, they're about this size. So, you need to put your hand in and grab them out. But sometimes they do bite you, so you have to be careful. So, me, uh, Daddy, and Owen, and I were just grabbing the fish, lobbing them out into the rocks, and then our little guys were just like, hitting them with the stones. Uh, we caught frogs that as well. We caught frogs down there and just ate the frogs. Yeah, it was brilliant. What is the weirdest thing that you ended up doing as part of your adventure channel? Has there ever been a moment where you thought, I actually can't believe this is my life, or I actually can't believe I'm here doing this exact thing. When 20, 30 yes. years ago, you were in Cumbernauld uh, in a council estate. Aye. So there's two things, mate. That I made, there's, there's these guys, these American guys, they're my good mates now. They've got a YouTube channel called Lost Balls. Their YouTube channel is bloody brilliant. They're really, they're like your typical American, yo guys, what's up? You know, but they're really full of energy. They're brilliant guys. I love them to bits. And, um, we went to this, it's like a wet market. We went to a wet market in Indonesia and they've got all these different, um, what do you call it? What's it? What do people call asparagus? An aphrodisiac, that's what I'm looking for. They have things over here like aphrodisiacs, right? 
and they've got these spitting cobras, like literally live spitting cobras at this wet market, and you go there, and the guy literally grabs it, chops its head off, squeezes the blood into a cup, he puts the beat the speedy, he puts that into a cup, he chops the spinal cord, puts that into the cup with the blood, and then puts this this alcohol called Arak. It's like a moonshine, basically a homemade alcohol called Arak. And they put that in to kill any of the germs or whatever that could be in it. And then you mix it around and you shot it. Uh, and, then, and then they, they skin the they skin the snake and they turn it into satay. They put it into like wooden wooden uh, skewers, wooden sticks, and they barbecue it. And then you eat the cobra after it. So that's probably the craziest thing I've eaten. <coughs> what was incredible experiences I've had and I even took my parrot, I take my parrot when I go as well and, and he loves coming like camping, hiking, so I've got a really friendly parrot, he's out the back just now but he I take him up the mountains, I take him to the jungle and he just sits on my shoulder, he can fly away do what he wants and come back, yeah, great relationship so, um, a great bond I should say <clears throat> so um, we went to this tribe, now this old traditional tribe, they're called the Badoi Right and and how they they live really deep in the jungle and how they came around is back in the Dutch colonial days right when the Dutch invaded, um these are like groups of people who ran away deep into the jungle who didn't want to be colonized and never were colonized because they ran so far deep into the jungle no Dutch people ever went there and they just literally live off the land, uh, they walk around so they they're not religious uh, like in in terms of like Christianity Islam Buddhism or anything but they. Their religion is um, nature, so they don't like you're not allowed to wear shoes there uh, because they think if you wear shoes and you're walking on the mud that you're you're hurting earth kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> they have they live this fantastic lifestyle. They build all their own homes out of wood and bamboo from the jungle, and they have this rule that whatever they take from the jungle they must give back. So they keep chickens underneath the thing, so the chickens like poop all in one area. Every three months, they'll take away the chicken poop and they'll replant that back into the jungle to help the jungle uh, habitat grow. Um, <clears throat> they have like they have these fish ponds that they made, which are made from like big kind of koi carp and goldfish. That's the fish pond that they um, eat from. So how they get rid of the toilet? They have these they have these other dirty little ponds that they make. These kind of yeah, the, the dirty little ponds, and they have like a little bamboo shelter on stilts on top of it and you go inside that and that's where you shower wash and you go go for a, a pee or a shit you shit obviously in there through a hole into that dirty river and in there they have catfish who eat all the shit so they don't eat the catfish of course but the catfish eat the shit so there's no smell of like being a sewer so the whole cycle of their life just runs through it's, it's just absolutely unbelievable they make their own clothes they harvest their own honey from the bees their way of life is just incredible. I got invited in and I went and spent three days living with them. I was just like, this is unbelievable. They gave like real honeycomb to take home with me that they had literally just cut down from the, the jungle canopy. You would not believe how fit these people are. There is a guy, he's about he's about 78, 79 years old. He's in one of my videos with Daddy and Owen. <clears throat> so what they do is there's this thing called um Gula Aren, right? It's real natural sugar and it comes from the Aran tree. It's like a big massive kind of pine tree, if you, not pine tree, a big massive uh, palm tree, right? And these things are like, you know, 10, 20 meters in the air. And what they'll do is up they they hack away a part of this tree and this sap will come out and they put it into this bamboo pole and they tilt it in such a way that it runs down, fills up. They do it twice a day, once in the morning, then they'll cut a new one. When they take the full one up, they'll cut a new hole and place another afternoon and keep recycling it every day 
and they take you can drink it straight and it's pure like liquid sugar it is beautiful um and they can also take it away and process it with like they burn it kind of like car- it turns into like a caramel then they dry it out crush it down and it becomes brown sugar <clears throat> but how they get up the tree mate they have this big massive long bamboo pole that goes all the way up the tree one pole, right not in la- they don't even make ladders mate one pole they chop a hole this size on each part of the pole all the way up and this old guy climbs up that with his big toe he just puts his big toe in the hole and climbs up it with his toe and he's like 70 years old and we were just like what and he's climbing up this 10 20 meter tree and they just come back down as if it's nothing at eight years old it's like come on i mean it's another world mate and we, by the way we walked we walked about five miles through the jungle and he walked barefoot to do this you know what it's, it's these people are just phenomenal Where's the Balfour Health and Safety Officer when you need him? I know, I know. <laughs> Where is he? Is it a meeting in London? <laughs> that is nuts, mate. Why? Why would he be able to like? Abs- how would he be able to do that? Would the nerve endings be gone in his foot, or like the callus of the skin be too rough? What, how it, could he do that and we just couldn't? Been, just been doing it since they were kids, mate. You know, so it's. I mean. They, from others. I mean, the feet are solid at the bottom. You, you could you could put a spike in that or a needle and they wouldn't even feel it. You know, it's just totally solid. That's insane. We, we had a guy in the army called Stefan Botma, and he could run about in a red ash pitch in his bare feet, mate. He was like, look, I, I got my first pair of shoes when I was 15 years old in South Africa. He just used to run about in his bare feet. So, and he was still the same. He could play football in a red ash pitch barefoot, mate, and his feet were solid, you know, just the way they're grown up. I want to ask about your uh, pet Lowak. What is a Lowak? I've not heard of that before, besides the yeah, uh, the intro that you gave. Yeah, so, um, in, you know, with the different dialects, in, in the island of Java, where I live, they call it a Mosang. And in Bali, they call it a Lowak. It's the same thing. It's essentially called a weasel in their language when you translate it, but it's not a weasel, actually. Um, it's called an Asian palm civet cat. So it's a palm civet. And even though they've named it an Asian palm civet cat, it's not even a cat. Um, of interest knowledge for you. So, People think that hyenas are from the dog family, the canine family, and actually they're not. Hyenas are not canines. They are what's called genets. And civets and genets are actually in the same family tree. So she's actually closer to a hyena than what she is, a cat or even a weasel at that point. So she's in the same kind of lineage as, um, I would say, like a skunk, badger, a pine marten. You know, they're all kind of in that same kind of family tree. She's basically like one of them. And you have one in your house kicking about as a pet. Aye. <laughs> She's a... <clears throat> Mine's the rescue. I don't recommend anyone getting them. And I'm someone who... Pardon me. If you have a wild animal, I'm just like, get it back in the jungle. The reason why I keep her here is because she had two back broken legs. She had... This front leg was broken. She had a broken jaw. So now her mouth is like all overshot. Um, and she can't straighten this arm. And she she's like seven years old now. And she's only like two kilograms. These animals in the wild should be like 10 to 12 kilograms. They should be massive. And she's only on the size. It's because she had so much trauma with the broken legs and blah, blah, blah before. She's basically disabled. So if I took her back, she would not last a minute in the jungle because she climbed trees the way that she should. She can't jump from tree to tree the way that she should if she didn't have the, the they call it a bangkok. She didn't have the khaki leg. Um, so she, she would die if I took her back to the jungle. That's why I still keep her. Um, but she's not a good. she's not good as a pet. She is, her and I are like that. 
but if anyone else goes near her, she will literally rip the finger clean off her, like like a badger. Um, these animals will fight an animal three times the size of them, completely fearless. Um, and my wife can't can't even go near her. She'll she'll literally rip the finger off you. And they also have locked jaw, so if they bite onto you and they don't want to let go, you, you're not getting her off. So it's it's quite a dangerous pet. But I mean, her and I, because I've brought her up like a hand fed her. I had to change her bandages like three times a day when she like for months and months on end. So now me and her are like this, you know. She's like my best mate. Um, so she so like truly yeah, really recognizes you as her dad and won't oh, attack you or anything. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Yep. What the hell? Well, and nah, will she like come into your bed or come into your lap or into your arms? Well, when I'm like in my apartment's empty just now, but whenever um, no one's here, then I let her out. She's in the cage through the back, a big massive cage through the back, so she can run around. But um, I let her in here to run around and play with me. But then when anyone else comes, like my wife comes back, I need to put her back in the cage because she would just she would just attack her. So when you take her out on expeditions, will she just like walk alongside you or walk with you? And always know to come back to you. She would never like run away and scurry off into the wild. No, mate, she's a lazy little shit. So I put her on top of my backpack, and she just sits up there. And sometimes she'll she'll give like a if she keeps and like breathing heavy through her nose, and then like pacing up and down in my bag. That, that lets me know that she needs a toilet. So I then put her down. I just love to put my hand out, and she just walks down my arm and goes onto the ground, and then I, she just does the toilet. And then let her like run around for a bit. I've got a couple of deals. She's just like walking behind me, but she's so slow. She's not like a dog where you can shout on it. She's not intelligent as a dog, but she's smart enough to cat where she can she can use a cat litter tray kind of thing. But she's not as intelligent as as a dog where you can be like, "Oi, come on, let's go." You know, she she's not gonna follow you like that. So you just have to keep walking, and she will just follow you because she doesn't want to be too far away from you. Um, but that's really it. But more of the time, I do have to pick her up and put her you know, on top of my shoulder and just bring her with me because she's so slow at walking. And what about your relationship with your parrot? How did you, uh, what made you think I'm going to get a bird and I'm going to domesticate it? So you're not even allowed pets in these apartments. They're, they're nice apartments and sometimes you will go to an apartment block and they let you know pets allowed. It doesn't even matter if you own it, but we all just fucking chin them off and we all have pets anyway. Um, one of my subscribers mailed me one time and he was like, Bang Ryan, but Bang just means bro, and everybody calls each other Bang over here. So he was like, Bang Ryan, he was a breeder, he, you want a parrot? I have baby. And I was like, Mate, I would love a parrot, but it's too noisy. And he's like, No, no, this is a green cheek connure. This bird is like very well known for being one of the quietest pet birds you'll ever get. I was like, No way, he's talking shit. So I Googled it, and true, it says if you're like, if you don't want a noisy bird, get a green cheek on you because they're not very noisy, they're not very vocal at all. And I got him. He sent me, he was only about two or three weeks old at the time. He was just this little pink blob with like tiny little feathers just starting to come out. And I just literally hand fed him like five, six times a day because I sit here at the computer trading. I literally sat here like this, the, the towel here on my chest. I used to trade when he would just fall asleep in my hand. And then um, because I just had him like 24 hours a day, basically, and we, as soon as he got feathers and was able to feed, I didn't even have to train him. We just had a brilliant bond. And every time I go somewhere, he's just straight on my shoulder. Even this morning, um, you can probably see it. I'll show you it right now. Uh, we So every Sunday in Jakarta, they have a thing called Car Free Day, um, where you can, there's no cars allowed in the city. And thousands upon thousands of people go down to the city uh, and run around. And you can see this is me and my parrot today. I'll move that. That's oh my god! Uh, For the listeners who are listening on audio only, this is a picture of uh, Ryan in front of a bunch of skyscrapers with a 
her on his shoulder like some sort of pirate. <laughs> <laughs> and every time I'm running past people, they're like, "What? Oh, a burung, a burung. It's like, hey, that guy's got a bird, that guy's got a bird. And everyone's amazed that the bird doesn't fly away. You know, it's just it's such a brilliant pet. I, why doesn't the bird fly away? Is it just so used to being in your company? It just, just knows that you're yeah, mate, that's it. I mean, sometimes I do use a little lead, but that's only because uh, what can happen with birds, even if friendly is him and tame, uh, if you get one of these stupid loud boy racer cars or boy racer motorbikes with that stupid exhaust flying by, it can make them feared and fly away in fear. And then they just fly away so far that they're scared. They're like, yeah, they don't know how to come back. So sometimes if I'm going to an area where I know, right, this is a possibility, I'll just put the kind of the little lead thing on them. But he can actually still fly for like two, three meters. It doesn't restrict them. It just means that you can't get lost, kind of thing. Mate, do you ever just pulse check on your life and recollect how absolutely ridiculous it is in comparison to growing up in a council <laughs> estate in Cumbernauld? You have what is essentially the same as a badger, or a, a family member to the badger, and a parrot, and you cut around yep. one of the most exotic countries in the world um, yep. doing these incredible expeditions that is it's bipolar to a life in Cumbernauld. <laughs> It is, mate. The crazy thing is, two seconds, I'm going to put the battery back on my laptop, two seconds. Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, mate, I, honestly, eight, eight years ago, I, I was fucking homeless. I was, you know, I had no money in the bank. When my dad, when I got this job, my dad took me to the airport and he slipped 50 quid in the pocket. Oh, there's 50 quid, you know, see yourself out when you go over there. And uh, I, I just look back and, and now and I just think, what the fuck? You know, like, this is mad. Like, I send mum uh, money and, like, monthly and stuff. I send her, like, a couple hundred quid and all that, so he doesn't have to worry about money. And, and yeah, I send my dad some money. And I just think, like, it's so different from when I first came over here and I literally didn't have a pot to piss in. And now if anybody's in the shit, I can help them out, you know. Um, I, I'm definitely grateful for it. Our attitude is something that I just think is, is so underrated. Um, if, you know, if you're trying to get to 100 grand a year, for example, and you start off and you get 25 grand a year and you're pissed off that you're not 100 grand a year, I don't think you're going to reach 100 grand a year because whatever happened in the world for you to get to the 25 is like, well, if you're not happy that I got you 25, you can fuck off at 100, you know? So I just believe you have to be grateful all the way down the line and, and kind of maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but I've just personally found that when I make sure I'm grateful for something, um, you know, I seem to get more of it abundance. I remember one time I was going on holiday to Bali so much at weekends because it's like 50 quid in a flight for us. Um, I literally said, oh, I'm fucking sick of going to Bali all the time. And I was ungrateful for going to Bali. And then COVID struck and we couldn't go to Bali for two years and I was fucking dying to go to Bali. Do you know what I mean? So I was just like, Yo, you know, your word is your prayer, as my wife always says, shut up. <laughs> the uh, People over here in Scotland crave holidays to Bali. They fetishize them. Um, they love posting yeah. about them on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, that's like yeah. the equivalent of me going down to Presswick Beach for you. Like you have to 50 quid return and yeah. you're in one of the most beautiful islands that the, the world's yeah. ever produced. Aye. It is a phenomenal place. And honestly, I've been to 67 countries so far in my life. I've met loads of beautiful, welcoming, kind people all over the world. But I can honestly say, Indonesians take it to a whole new level. Like, you literally down the street here and you're just minding your own business and people be like, hello, mister, apakabar. Like, hello, mister, how are you? And you're like, I'm fine, mate, thank you. Okay, bye. <laughs> just mm -hmm. random talking. <laughs> you walk down from a mountain 
and you'll be like exhausted, you know, your sweat will be pissing off you, your t-shirt's going to be bogging, you look totally fucked, and that you'll be walking past this random little hut, you know, that, where the, one of the villagers lives, and I'm like, hello, mister, my copy, 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 and it means like, copy means like, come and sit with us and have coffee uh, and drink, you know, so you'll sit there and have a share coffee and talk to them, next minute, mate, they'll be bringing out of rice, vegetables, salty fish, chicken, eggs, you're like, what the fuck? And then once you finish all that talking to them, you'll be getting ready to go away. And they'll be like, where are you going to stay tonight? You're like, yeah, I'm just going to camp down at base camp. No, no, girls, come and stay with us. And they're like, you're staying with this family in the home. And you're like, can you imagine walking down, you know, Renfrew Street and some random people? Like, hey, you hungry, mate? You, you want some fish and chips? Come on in, come on in. Fucking hell. Get yourself a seat. Where are you staying the night? Oh, fuck getting the bus back to come on. I'll keep here, mate. I'll drive you home tomorrow. I mean, that's never going to happen, is it? The people here are just next level, man. They are really next level. <laughs> it's men. Because when you, when you said, when you told me that, that, that story about the Indonesians welcoming you, I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty nice. But then when you compare it to, like, my Saturday night down the town, yeah, that's so rare. <laughs> I know. I know, mate. And everybody wants I've... to tell you. One thing... One thing that drives you nuts is, um, like, if you ask for directions here and they don't know, they'll tell you that they know. Like, you'll be like, hey, mate, do you know where the Hilton is? Obviously, everybody knows where something like a Hilton is, you know? And they're like, yeah, mate, you just go straight down there, straight around, past the traffic lights, second on the left, and you're like, right, so you'll go there, mate, it's a rice field. You're like, mate, you go back like, there. Well, if it's better than I do, and you're like, oh, why didn't you say that? <laughs> How could you get confused with knowing where the hell is? You know, so people will always do that. They'll always tell you they know something. But now I know the body language. If they tell me, oh yeah, it's here, I'm like, yeah, he's full of shit. You know, now I know when they're, when they're talking shit. <laughs> I've seen you do a few TV commercials over in Indonesia. Are you famous over there? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm, I don't like class myself as famous, but my, my YouTube now is at like 715,000 subscribers. Um, I'm sponsored by the North Face. I'm sponsored by Kawasaki. So with the Kawasaki stuff, um, I just really ride their motorbikes through the jungle to go and meet these kind of little local tribes. And that's obviously how the Kawasaki thing, because they want to, they don't just want it to be for motocross. They want to say, like, you can do this for like, you know, the great outdoors adventure. <clears throat> um, obviously North Face give me all my gear and pay me and stuff. Um, and yeah, so I go to big events. I go to like whenever there's like a massive, there's a huge, it's the largest outdoor festival in the world here. Um, it's called Outdoor Fest. They have it once a year. And whenever they have that, of course, North Face have a big, massive stall there. And then I get invited on stage to talk about my experiences and mountains and what's been the hardest, you know, what, how do we prevent ourselves from getting hypothermia and, you know, all this kind of stuff, give hints and tips. So I guess you could say people know me in that. And, uh, I'm married into actually a very famous Indonesian family. Um, my sister-in-law is called Melanie Ricardo. She's like a she's kind of like our version of like Holly Willoughby, if that's how you want to look at it. Uh, my wife deals with all of she. My wife is an artist management agency. So she deals with all that. And my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, he's a famous rapper over here, Roy Ricardo. So it's like I'm in this really famous Indonesian family. Like everywhere we go. If we just walk through the shop center, people are always like, bam, 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 my photo, my photo, or bang, Roy, my photo, and everybody wants photos and stuff. So, like, we go to Bali, we get, like, crazy shit, mate. Not not through me, what's there, but through my sister-in-law. Like, where was it? I think it was the Ritz-Carlton. So we've obviously got the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, right, which the rooms are, like, £600 a night. And then gave us like, a three-bedroom villa, which is part of the hotel, but you get, like, these separate big luxury villas. They gave us a villa 
which is five and a half grand a night with a private butler and blah blah like at your beck and call 24 7 they gave us that for a week and all she like just so that she posted it to her social media so we get like that really cool shit from it as well which that's not from me that's obviously from her that's insane how did you meet your wife in that case have you how did you marry into an indonesian famous family aye so May I landed here on the 4th of December and then on the 10th of December, <coughs> excuse me, it was obviously the end of the work week and I was just cutting about myself because it was nobody really an English speaker in the office or, and I don't mind going out myself. So I just literally jumped in a taxi and I was like, drive, you know, until I see something that I like and we're driving around and I found this bar, the JD Royal <clears throat> and I just saw it because of the big lights and I thought, oh, that looks nice. And then uh, stopped there, got in there and there was, there was, uh, she, there was my wife she was with her baby, who's a gay guy called Jimmy. Um, and Jimmy was the boyfriend of the French ambassador over here. So I got talking to the French dude because he's the French ambassador. And I said, oh, where are you from? And at that point, I was actually quite good at French. I was learning in Iraq uh, beforehand. So we were having a laugh about my Tarzan French. And, uh, and then obviously, because I was talking to him, we got acquainted. Oh, this is my boyfriend. This is his best friend, Nana. And that's, that's how we met. That's insane, mate. And did she yeah, just take to you because of your Scottish accent? <laughs> no, I don't know what it was. I mean, we were we were we weren't serious for a long time. We were just dating and stuff. And then with my job here, I was like, I wasn't just here the whole time. So I was here for a couple of months, and then I was away working in Kuala Lumpur office for a couple of months. Then I was away working in Minsk for a couple of months. Then then I was working in Manila for a couple of months, and then came back. So we actually stayed in touch. And then and whenever I was in like. If I was in uh, Malaysia for a while, she would just fly over because it's only about it's only about a two-hour flight. She would fly over, spend the weekend with me. I, you know, so she was brilliant. She was uh, she was really great. Mate, what a thing, life you've lived. One thing, this is a great story. And you know what? Look, it was still at the point wasn't really making it. I wasn't a trader at this point. I was just doing the sales. And if you, by the way, it was cutthroat sales. If you didn't get commissions, you basically didn't have any money. And when I was still struggling at this point, I came back <clears throat> to work at the office. But they only supplied your accommodation and they used to give you $200 a week to get you through for the first two months. After that, they never covered your accommodation. They never gave you money monthly. So I was I was on my arse at the point, right? Um, I was I had done deals, but it takes a month for the commission to come through. And I was like, fuck. And so I literally had no money, no accommodation, nothing. And I was flying back from Manila. And this is how shit my wife is. My wife knew I had nothing, right? Well, obviously my girlfriend at the time knew I had nothing. She paid my flight back from Manila to come here because the company wasn't going to pay it. She paid my flight back from Manila to come here. Uh, she had me picked up by a car and driver at the airport. The car and driver handed me an envelope of 2 million rupiah, which is about 150 quid. Uh, and said there, there was a credit card. And she, if you want food and drinks, just use a 2 million rupiah. There's, there was a bank card inside. It was a family bank card. If you want food and drinks at a restaurant, use the bank card. If you want to sell some new shoes, new suits, blah, blah, blah. Use the family credit card. Here's the numbers. Uh, and inside they have I got one in my pocket? No, I don't. She gave me a little access card for an apartment and a set of apartment keys. Mate, she said, look, my, my family own apartments everywhere. This one's empty. Nobody in it. It's all fully kitted out. Just go and live there for now. Get yourself beaten on that. And I was just like, <sighs> like, my, my wife, my wife has loaded me. And she made when I had absolutely fuck all. And man, nearly brings her tears. <laughs> It nearly brings a tear to my finger with this because it's so raw. And I just remember thinking, fuck me. And I remember this, mate, when I had nothing. Sorry. And I sorry. And I remember saying, man, if I make it, if I make it here, like, I'm 
fucking my wife is going to get everything from me, man. I love that, man. I love that. And look look at the life you live now together um, and the platform that you've built and the, the trading knowledge and the trading profile that you've created. And now you're in a place yeah. that like you, you match that level of generosity. That's just amazing, man. That's so warm to hear. Two people who are so radically different in terms of background as well. You yeah. are a poor council <clears throat> scheme Scotsman yeah. and a place that she's never even heard of. And then this kind of well-to-do uh, Asian woman, and she's just put her hand out and helped you. And look at you know, I mean, she comes, she comes from a life. She, sorry, she comes. Well, like, sorry, it's a crossover there. She comes from a life where like, they've got cars, drivers, they've got maids. They literally do nothing, you know. And and she may, and at the same time, she was uh, like working the day, and it was quite solid, uh, you know, before that happened. Um, she was dating a guy who was like the regional man, the regional manager for Porsche of Asia. So she was dating the guy who was making like twenty fifty grand a month, and then she was with me who was making absolute fuck all. You know what I mean? It's like it's totally crazy, man. And the two of us are like peas in a pod. We've been together, well, you could say eight years now if you want to count it from when we first met. <laughs> um, we've been married five years now. Honest to God, mate. Like we sit down sometimes and we're like, when have, when was the last time we argued? We cannot remember when we've had an argument. And I know people are like, oh, it's not healthy if you don't argue. And I would just say, shut up, that man. Me and my wife don't argue and our like our relationship is fucking brilliant. We can have a laugh about anything. You know what I mean? Like my wife is just so bang on. It's amazing. I mean, I've been really proud to get to know you over the last two hours, man. What an absolute story. Um, before I go, I'm going to quickly say, does your wife have a younger sister? <laughs> I'm only joking. I know. <laughs> An older sister. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes aside, mate, this has been amazing. Honestly, I'm really, really proud to unpick your story. Um, how I describe what I want to get out of this podcast, uh, episode on episode, is to show distance travelled. And not only have you shared distance travelled metaphorically in terms of where you, where you started and where you are now financially and um in, in terms of your, your your purpose and life mission but also geographically like this is the yep. first time i've ever uh yeah had an indonesian based um creator on my on my podcast so yeah mate thank Aye. you for bringing that to life mate what's next for you good question mate i think i'm just going to keep you know pounding out the, the the content i've decided to go more i previously was like a mountain vlog and i've i'm going to keep doing that but i'm going to change it a little bit more documentary with more voiceover as opposed to more vlogging style, because I, I believe I can get a better kind of a better, I can create a better content that way. Um, that's pretty much just going to continue. Uh, I have my own trading platform called the Trading Guys, and um, where I teach people, we myself, my business partner Lee, teach people how to trade. We've got you know millions of educational videos. On top of that, we actually give the mentorship for trading, and that's important. So. I've get people to contact me and they're like, man, I've been watching trading videos for four years and I just don't get it. And it's, you need the mentorship. If you go to medical school to be a heart surgeon for five years, whatever it is, you just go to university every day and you're reading medical books, but there's no professor or lecturer there to actually guide you. You don't get hands-on where you're cutting open a frog and then you're, you know, you're seeing a dead body and detecting it. If you don't get that, you're never going to be a surgeon just because you've read the books for five years, you know? And it's exactly the same trading. If you don't have a mentor to actually go over it with, you'd be like, no, you need to hold off here. Sometimes when we enter a trade, we'll enter a trade and instantly start going against us. And I'll say, right, guys, stop. Right now, emotionally, this is how you're going to feel. You're going to be thinking, fuck me, you're going to be panicking that your account's down £300. Don't panic. This is a reversal. It's just simply the market pulling back. 
So just let it go, blah, blah. And, and I talk them through it because I trade live so they can see what I'm doing and they can copy my exact trade at the same time that I take it. So and that kind of mentorship is is really invaluable. So I'm just going to continue with that. We're going to grow up. We've now done, we've now opened up the funded accounts. So if maybe someone's only got a thousand pounds, like me, I don't have a lot of money. I've only got a thousand pounds. Well, my company does funded challenges where you can buy a challenge. If you pass the challenge, which simply proves that you actually can trade, you know how to trade, then you can get like a 50 grand account, 100 grand account, and blah, blah, blah. And we teach them how to do that and make them as well. We're using the company's funds. So they maybe get like, 75% of the commission each month and the company takes 25 but at least they're getting a 100 grand account to trade as opposed to a $1,000 account and even if not that sure on how to trade they just simply copy my trades and I've got loads of mates who have jumped in with me and they're like mate another two three months of this once I feel confident like I'm done they're making like 800 pounds a day just copying my trades and they're like mate this is they're like I cannot fucking believe I'm going to work to make this you know I, I make this in two weeks and I fucking made it this morning before I went to work, you know, they can't believe. So I'm, uh, for me, I'm genuinely happy that I'm able to give back for that because I just, uh, it's not about, I want to see everyone rich. I want to see everyone out of, you know, this matrix of thinking that you have to work and at the end of it, you get your state pension, which is shit and all this. No, I just want people to feel that they have to worry about bills anymore because I've been there when you can't pay bills. I know how fucking horrible it is and it's even more horrible if not, I mean, when I didn't have a job and couldn't pay my bills, that was horrible. But what's even worse is when maybe there's two, the mum and the dad are working in a family and you're still struggling with bills. There's nothing fucking worse than that, mate. And I'm not pointing my fingers at anybody. I'm saying that because I've been there and I know how shit that feels, you know. And to have a way now where I don't worry about bills, I don't worry about going on holidays, I don't worry about cars, like, you know, petrol, or food. And, and I mean that in a nice way. I'm like, fuck, I want everyone to experience this. And if I can now help people via trading, you know, at least, even if they want another five, and that's going to help, you know, happy fucking days. That's amazing, man. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And if anyone wants to get in touch, where can they find you if they want on board? Yeah, so my, uh, I'm on Facebook as Ryan Mac. I also have Bully Bolang. So uh, Bully, I'm on Instagram as well. Uh, Bully, B-U-L-E underscore bolang which is b-o-l-a-n-g my youtube is the same uh, and obviously if you want to get in touch with the trading guys it's www.thetradingguys.com this has been a lot of fun mate thank you for jumping on for over two hours and sharing your story thanks a lot for having david speak to you soon mate cheers And there we have it, another episode. Thank you for sticking to the end. You mean the world to me. You really, really do. I can't believe you trust me with over an hour of your time and attention. And you trust my voice. You trust the stories that I like to share. You guys mean the absolute world to me. I don't know where I'd be without you. I don't know where I'd be without this podcast. It's my absolute everything. Please, please, please do what you can to send love to this podcast. Engage with the sponsors and engage with me. Share this podcast as far as you can make it go. Whether it's in work group chats, whether it's your aunties, your uncles, your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, your friends, anyone who needs to be self-developed even further, send us their way. And give me a five star if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, hit that five star button. I'm really, really proud of this episode and I'm really proud to call you listeners. Hope to see you in the next one.